welcome to Meteor Roots Radio. Welcome to World War Three. Welcome, everybody. How's everybody doing today? I was driving in a lift yesterday, and while I was driving in the car, the guy was playing the Cranberries. He's like an old, I don't know, late 60s heavyset guy playing the Cranberries and singing along to it. And then while during the drive, he turned down the music and said, Imagine, if you will, if bombs and rockets and grenades were dropping on this street right now. And part of me was like, I, wait, should I, is he, he's obviously talking about like Russia bombing Ukraine, but should I just like really lean into this and just, just like make him really scared about like a nuclear apocalypse or should I shut it down? So I just decided to shut it down because I guess a part of me was just really annoyed by the fact that some like random Lyft driver who picked me up would want to just assume that I'm you know, enraged by what's going on in Ukraine, but it's like I've never had anyone ever in a cab ride ever say that to me about like Iraq or Afghanistan or like Palestine, like nothing like that. Was he listening to the zombie song that made him just be revved up or what? No, it was like, (laughs) that would have been a great uh, thing if he was, but no, this was like, he was listening to that one that's like, do, 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 do. And he was like singing uh, (laughs) live to it. And, as he was talking, um, I drove by a building that had Ukraine like colors like beamed onto it, like the Ukraine flag color. So just that was that's like really been my only dosage so far of like being exposed to real Normies. life propaganda soaking into what the public is thinking right now. Other than that, I've just seen it on the media and online. But that was that was my first exposure to it. Have you had an experience like that yet since yes. this all started? Yes. One person who is my neighbor, um, I was talking to him about Russia invading. I just throw it out there to just see like where their heads are at before I chime in, let's just say. And like, and I brought up the fact that, you know, the same week that Russia invaded, the U.S. had bombed Somalia and Yemen and all. and And he was just like, wait, he's like, the U.S. is bombing countries like in the 21st century. So that what? was one. That was one. <laughs> that is amazing. That Wait, was one is, experience. Wow. And here's the other experience. I was taking a lift too for the first time in months, and the guy, I get in the car, and he was just like, "Don't wear your mask." I I don't do that anymore. And I was like, "Okay." So right out of the gate, I was like, "Ooh, this is gonna get, this is just like sticky," because I I, uh-huh. I I feel like if I'm wearing it, it's like making a political statement against him, you know. So it was just strange from the get. But then as we're driving. He brings up Russia and he was just like very he just basically framed it as when a when a state is centralized in terms of its economy, because Russia's communist, when you centralize your power, you have no choice but to expand because you've like taken hold of the whole country and now you have to grow. I was just like, I was just like, okay, first of all, (laughs) like, how are we going to how are we going to like really Really get to the heart of this, That's man. That's some and real so, baby brain nonsense. He thought, <laughs> wait, did he actually think that Soviet, that Russia was still communist? Yes, yes. And he wow, even, he even was like very, moron. he even was like so condescending, like lecturing me about how oh, you God, just need to study history. Asshole, dude. I you just need like, to study history. This guy makes me want to vomit in his car in the backseat of his lift because this shit is annoying, dude. Like even just the fact that he would say, oh, I don't, you don't have to do that anymore. It's like. No, this is my choice, you fucking asshole. I'm if I it's crazy to me that the politics of mask wearing has gotten so idiotic that now it's like 
this political statement to be like, no, throw your mask off. It's like, no, do you understand personal choice, you dumbass? This is about personal freedom and choice, not you telling me what to do. So these people have lost their minds, clearly. And it's, so I, I'm, what you're describing is almost more of like a, like a right winger Russian hot guy. Yeah. I'm, I'm almost assuming this guy I drove with was more of like a lib, but I yeah. have no idea. Right. I mean, it's getting, it's getting almost impossible to discern the difference as you're going to point out with Fox News versus CNN and all this. But um, but before we get into the media frenzy and how they compare, let's just talk about what we know so far, because things are getting increasingly tense and frankly, outright bizarre in the wake of Russia's very, invasion very of Ukraine. We're, yeah. we're on what week three, I think um, the media. Let's just say this. The media across the board cannot stop glorifying neo-Nazis. So let me just let me just preface this by saying, if you've listened to our previous two podcasts, if you've watched Robbie's Very Heavy Agenda, you know that there are complexities to the situation. Obviously, we're not repeating Putin's propaganda that they need to de- denazify Ukraine and somehow this is all justified because Nazis are present in Ukraine. No, as we covered before, the Nazi party, the far-right party, you know, only got like 2% of the vote. They don't have very much power in the government. However, the Azov Battalion, as well as other ultra-right nationalist insurgent groups have been folded into the armed forces. And even though I, I want to think that their presence is minimal, it is strange to me that Every single mainstream news yeah. bureau cannot stop fucking showing Nazis and glorifying them. Guardian, Reuters, AP, PBS just did an interview with a mayor who was elected as an open neo-Nazi. So there's no, but there was no like way that they didn't know who this guy was. Of course. This guy in the interview, he's talking about how he wants to kill Russian cockroaches who come into the city and PBS had blurred out. Steven Bandera or whatever, the Nazi, this giant portrait of a Nazi behind him. So they knew who this guy was. Here, Well, here's the thing with that one. It seemed like, this is if you look at that clip, it looks like the guy used the Zoom blur background or Skype blur background preset himself. Okay, got it. Okay. But even still... Right. Like, no, like they knew, like if he has the portrait in his office, it's like, that's so blatant already. It's like him blurring it out (laughs) is not going to hide this fact. And it's not going to make the BBC's fact checkers not going to be able to find this shit like five seconds. Well, And also the guy is a sitting elected mayor who was elected as an open neo-Nazi. So it's like, okay, this isn't just some guy. It's just like the fog of war. And it's like the frenzy to get the story. No, it's like this guy has already established himself. And it keeps happening, Abby. Right. Getty Images shows a guy rescuing someone who got hit by Russian shelling or a woman, and he has a fucking Black Sun Nazi uh, patch on his outfit. And that's a, it's a Getty Images like image. It's like showing this heroic scene from the war. It's like, do you guys not know what you're doing? Don't you even have someone there who's like, wait a second, like one person at your media organization who knows what these fascist symbols are and can just like filter those pictures out at the very least. Or Photoshop, I guess photoshopping them out would be too obvious, um, but but even blurring them out would be, but like, why not just filter them out and not use them? <laughs> I think that's a testament to how prevalent this actually is. And in fact, I think it's probably worse than I previously realized because the political complexities are, are like this, where Zelensky, he's not specifically a neo-Nazi himself, but he has to placate 
these neo-Nazi political groups in the country. And he has actively reached out to them at various times and like tried to placate them and sort of work with them. And I think that that just goes to show that they, they do play a very big role. And it's different than neo-Nazis here in the United States. Imagine if somebody was like on Twitter to me, they were like, imagine if the Proud Boys got rolled into the National Guard. And I was like, well, that would be crazy if that happened. But what's in what's happening in Ukraine is like 10 times crazier than that. Because the Proud Boys aren't like hardcore neo, like died in the wool neo-Nazis who are like mili fully militarized. That's a whole other animal of, you know, the Proud Boys are like mostly just dork, like roided up, like, like dorks who take like, you know, lots of HGH and get, you know, those weird like uh, protein shakes at, um, what's it called? Like GNC and like, they don't, you know, they're not actually out there training like Azov is. Um, and so it's just, I just think it's so much different than anything we can say about our own neo-Nazis. So I guess when I see people saying like, well, we have neo-Nazis here, you know, would so-and-so, would it be okay for someone to denazify us? I mean, it's not really comparable because it's like they're literally officially in the National Guard. And the U.S. was so intent on making sure Azov got the part of the money. I mean, what does that say? That shows they have a lot of political power. Well, first of all, I said that on the last podcast. So but no, you didn't say it like I'm I, not in the way that I mean. I'm talking yeah, about yeah. The, the sort of blanket statement that it's the same. Right. It's and not I, at all. Well, and there's also the problem of neo-Nazis in the Russian insurgent groups, too. So there's a lot sure. of bleed yeah. over and crossover with this. But um, but it is so crazy because of the prevalency of neo-Naziism that mm -hmm. all these mainstream reporters just cannot help themselves. You would think there'd be some sort of awareness, self-awareness and self-censorship to not promote this so openly, considering the problem with far-right extremism, the fact that this is, you know, the, the Biden administration, of course, takes this on as part of their mantle. You know, we need to fight far-right extremists here, yet we're going to rush to send these actual dyed-in-the-wool neo-Nazi groups weapons, grenade launchers, um, you know, all of this shit that's just been javelin missiles, like all of this crazy stuff. So, What's crazy, too, is that Hillary Clinton's out there, you know, advocating the, quote, Afghanistan model for the plan in Ukraine. I mean, this is just batshit crazy. The fact that you have Hillary fucking Clinton, right, long-term insurgency akin to the Afghanistan insurgency that was fueled by the West that basically paved the way for bin Laden, al-Qaeda to gain strength. It just makes no sense. And let's just look at it like this. Like, who from all sides would run to Ukraine to train and want to be involved in this kind of localized combat. What kind of people would do that? The most crazy, fanatical, extremist elements, the most violent, hateful elements of people around the world that are now being encouraged to go train. Like there's all these puff pieces about veterans here that felt like they they weren't respected enough when they were trying to spread democracy, Robbie, because the populations weren't receptive enough to democracy. That's what the New York Times printed. So they're doing these puff pieces on veterans who are rushing to Ukraine to join this fight so they could kill Russians. Um, so, yeah, I guess just comment on like that, just that in itself, the fact that who would even do this? Who Who's out there like fighting these mini battles right now? Well, unfortunately, Abby, I think it's already, there's already a full ramp 
and it's it's already running real strong of the same scenario we saw in Syria. There are already self-identified leftist groups who have gone over to Ukraine, not from Ukraine, who have gone there from foreign countries, anarchist leftist groups, uh, and said that they are fighting against Russia. This is this is the same situation we saw in Syria where it's not just extremist right-wing militarized, you know, people who've come out of actual militaries like veterans from the US military. It's seemingly some of these like activists, like anarchist types too, who are starting to get involved. Now I haven't I've seen very little of that so far, but I think that that's I mean because of the amount of this pouring into liberalism as a whole which is going to get leftists sort of like a brain virus. You know, some of them are already sucked in. A lot of leftists I've already seen with the Ukrainian flags on their profiles. I'm almost like more concerned once it gets to that level because then it becomes like, well, then it's like a bipartisan, everyone supports this. It's not even just the extremists, like right-wingers who are going over there to fight Russians. It's, it seems like it's every, everybody wants to join in. And that's, I think that's what I'm mostly worried about right now because it seems like it's all over sort of the liberal sphere now and the as i was saying before we started recording the fox news sort of wing of things is also now pivoting to just full russia hawk mode and i think that is when we have to be i think one of the only silver linings of the trump era is that somehow foreign policy stopped being bipartisan for a second in a lot of important ways and in terms of the effect that it had like in terms of what was done um, even though a lot of liberals like supported the assassination of Soleimani and certain things there were there that was bipartisan, like Trump's bombing of Assad forces that one time. Now we're pivoting back to a f- like almost seemingly like a full bipartisanship uh, effect on what we need to do foreign policy wise. And I think that if we're moving towards that, that's one of the most dangerous places we could be right now, because at the very least, the divide, the political warfare back and forth creates somewhat of like a almost like two different camps of prevailing foreign policy views. It is interesting that Fox News for the past, I don't know, six years, five years or whatever, has been kind of downplaying the Russiagate stuff and doing a lot of things to counteract the liberal obsession with Putin and Russiagate, you know, and and now you see it just completely on the same page. There's a bipartisan consensus once again to react to Russia's invasion and basically all of that is now memory hold. So that is when it gets really dangerous and we have to really be diligent about about the way that this is all going to manifest. It's very, very disturbing. Um, I just wanted to add on to this, this notion of, you know, um, people from all sides of the political spectrum kind of joining in to whitewash neo-Nazis and talk about this. Uh, there's a guy named Ilya Ponomarenko on Twitter he is a defense reporter, quote unquote, with the Kiev Independent. So this is like one of the main publications that are publishing all of the, the pro-Ukrainian news. This guy has a huge following. He has almost a million followers on Twitter. And he basically wrote five days ago, he was like, by the way, where is this rise of, quote, extreme far-right neo-Nazi groups, end quote, in Ukraine that were supposed to be reaching the point of taking power now? Oh, no, no one? Okay, never mind gets retweeted like 4,000 times, right? Someone responded in there like, is this you? And there's all these tweets from him from 2019 of him literally hanging out with the Azov Battalion. 
He's like oh chilling out God, with the dude. Azov guys in Donbass. And then he's like, I'm absolutely devastated to know that my good friend, the former chief artillery officer with the Azov battalion, has passed away. And then his last one, here's the real clincher, brother in arms. It was a fine day in 2017, August, when Azov guys consecrated me as an artillery guy. And it's like, what, the wait, fuck? what on earth? Like, are you like with these people? Wait, is this guy white? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Because I have seen a guy, an African-American guy who was over there doing uh, like embedded reporting too. And it seemed like he was making similar comments. He didn't have as many, he didn't have like blatant <laughs> pro Azov tweets, but it was a similar scenario. People were like, whoa, dude, like, like what's happening? Like there was just like a similar sort of breakdown. But well, it's just like God, so that's... gaslighting. It's like, what? Oh, it's I mean, like, it's... what are you doing? Oh, it's so weird. And another thing someone sent me. So I, I started asking people, um, you know, we've seen a lot of the same photos of like blatant, you know, neo-Nazi symbols being displayed, like sort of by Getty images and stuff. So I sort of tried to fish around for more obscure uh, versions of that that people aren't catching. And someone sent me a really interesting video and I'll just tell you the title if you want to search for this on YouTube. The title is U.S. Marines and Ukrainian Marines with 36th Naval Infantry Brigade trained together from July 21st, 2021, only 608 views. So probably almost no one has seen this video. And here are U.S. soldiers in, in army fatigues training, doing official military training like exercises with Ukrainian soldiers coming over here to the United States. And in the video, uh, there's an interesting symbol on one of the Ukrainian um, soldiers, pa like patches on, on his body, the, you know, one of the guys who's training with the U.S. soldiers. It's the symbol of the Helm of Awe. And it's not, it's not blatantly, like it doesn't or originate as a Nazi symbol, but what it is is it's a it's a it's supposed to be a powerful protective symbol used by the Vikings. It's like very important in Norse mythology. So this is like when things get more crypto fascist, where it's like you know all these. So this soldier in this like official U.S. military training video, this isn't even like the media, is wearing like a symbol like this, just a huge patch on his shirt. So again. It almost just doesn't seem like these people care, like the, the officials care. We are really working with Azov and like it's really important to us. There's no denying that. So, um, Right. And when the last round of missiles were just sent, Azov was the first people on deck to receive those weapons. Uh, clearly, they have a much larger role than I even thought before. I know, mm -hmm. of course, that they had a big role during the coup because there was a lot of horrific shit that was going on. There was like people found beheaded during mm -hmm. Euromaidan is like really crazy shit going on. So like, obviously you have to be like a really fucked up person to do something like that. So it's scary though, to see how prevalent this is. I mean, and the mainstream media is basically just proving that point for us, which is just really, really disturbing because they could easily not do that. <laughs> if they, like, This is so much different than them trying to downplay or whitewash the idea that the CIA was funding al-qaeda affiliated groups in syria totally different because there wasn't like an a, there weren't groups in syria who had like the same who was like clear which groups they were right, and they were right. wearing like an al-qaeda logo yeah right it had to you had to go through some steps to understand what al nusra and who these groups were but this is totally in your fucking face that's what's different about it <laughs> and that's what to me makes it so it's almost like 
maybe the media landscape has gotten so malleable and putty-like and you can just create whatever narrative you want that it's almost like they don't even care. But you would think like a Jewish group or something would be like, I, here's a weird thing. That's apparently the Simon Wiesenthal Center, which is almost kind of like an ADL-like group, not as big, went after this uh, in 2014. So a big Jewish group actually did like make a big stink about this. And now you don't hear anything. I mean, and that, and it's even more in your face now. So that's curious to me. I don't understand. It's, it's quite surreal. It is mind blowing. I don't really know what to think about it. I know, man. And what's so crazy is the fog of war is still so intense that it's really hard to distinguish anything that's happening at all. As we mentioned in the last podcast, it's just gotten even murkier than that. Like, I have no idea what's going on. I know that there's many battles. There's a lot of heavy shelling between different insurgency fighters and Russian soldiers. I'm not watching mainstream media or cable, so I haven't seen what they're showing. I guess talk to us about what they are actually showing on the ground, because a couple of days ago, there was that report from Russia itself saying that 500 plus soldiers had already died that seems like mm-hmm. a, f- a lot of soldiers to lose in the initial week or so week or two i mean it does and you know if I, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to the previous episode i did solo where i played fred kagan clips where he was confused about the level of cannon fodder that the soldiers were sort of how they're being used like he didn't understand the military strategy behind like the just the military movements. And that's why he part of his thinking is he thought Putin had gone crazy because it seemed like a sloppy maneuver to begin with. But then he ends his rant by saying, well, they will. But ultimately, the Russians will be able to grind down the Ukrainians no matter what. They just will be able to outnumber them. You know, it'll be a, maybe slow, but they'll be able to grind them down, which is true. But it is sort of weird why, yeah, how, why were they willing to take on so many casualties? Russia wants to project this masculine, tough image. It didn't come off that way. It does seem like if he wants to win the optics war, if Putin wants to win the optics war or win more Americans over to like his side in terms of like believing in what he, you know, what he's saying or what his reasoning, I don't think it's, it doesn't seem like very much energy is being spent in that direction right now. There was a lot more ability for Russia to project, you know, a different point of view during 2014. I mean, was that because of Russia today being as as influential as it was back then? Like, how did it seem like they were able to do that? I mean, there's are they trying now, I guess is the question, to even do that now? To to shift more sympathy over to what their position is in the United States or elsewhere in the world. I, I mean, what do you think? I mean, like, are are they even being effective at doing that right now? Are they? But no. do you even see them trying? No, 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 no. I would say the opposite has happened. Where I think all of this has proven the point that we've been trying to talk about this whole time, which is that Russian propaganda is wildly overblown in terms of its influence in this country. Yeah, um, and I think that this proves that the fact that I, I haven't really seen anyone other than a couple like pro-Russian people on like Twitter and Facebook and stuff that are even saying what Putin's saying. Like for the most part, it's just 100% wall-to-wall pro-Ukraine, anti-Russia coverage. Um, and, and I think that speaks to the power of this homogenous bipartisan unity 
from the corporate state along with the political establishment. When when something's decided, it's I mean, it, it comes from every angle. And I haven't seen any space or oxygen given at all to anything that that Putin's saying or doing whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, just again, going back to this great influence myth of RT, RT America, it's sowing discord, fomenting discontent and how it really posed this huge problem of radicalizing Americans. I think it's just simply not the case. It never was the case. And here we are where I think what's happening, what's playing out right now proves the exact opposite. Absolutely. hundred percent. But then it begs a question, why was like, but maybe it just wasn't big enough. I mean, I keep in my mind, Abby, like my perception of this is that my world was enveloped by the Ukraine, you know, Russia, new cold war situation back in 2014, 2015, because I was making a documentary mm -hmm. about it. And you were sort of in the middle of all that stuff, you know, working for RT. But I guess I really have to take a step back and realize that the amount of media coverage, like mainstream media coverage, those tensions were getting was surprisingly low for the danger that existed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like there was a weird disconnect between the amount, like I feel like I scoured uh, CNN and things to find the, a lot of those clips that I found, like with them hyping up the threat from Russia. Like there, there was a surprisingly low amount of coverage and I think that's why how Obama was able to just sort of ghost and sort of right. act like there wasn't, he didn't really have much to say during that period, even though like anti-imperialist people like Robert Perry, you know, uh, Oliver Stone, uh, Katrina Vanderhoevel, her, her husband, RIP, Stephen Cohen, you know, all those people knew what was going on, but it was like, it wasn't really getting very much coverage, which is, is sort of eerie. So maybe that's what I'm sensing is like now... Maybe Russia feels like that now that the mainstream media is like fully firing on all cylinders here, that they have no way to like really compete against it. I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe that was part of the calculation of even shuttering RT America when they did. I, I have no idea. Probably the most egregious thing that the mainstream media here has been showing other than claims that tons of uh, civilians are being killed by Russians is that um, apparently a Russian tank shelled uh, the Zopar Zizia, I don't know how to pronounce that, nuclear power plant, apparently the largest in Europe, uh, and it caught on fire after you, uh, Russian tanks shelled this power plant. Now, apparently there was no radiation leak. Uh, it's now safe. The fire has been put out. But I mean, uh, I've, from what I've read, it seems like this is the first time in history that any war, basically a battle or a skirmish has like, occurred at a nuclear power plant. Like, that's like the first time in history. So that's pretty crazy precedent uh, to set just from what we've seen so far in this war. And another weird thing about it is, you know, you hear about the Quincy Institute being this anti-war think tank, right? But for some reason, a guy from the Quincy Institute is like all over the mainstream media, like horseshit right now, named Joseph Sionionis. Don't know how to pronounce his name. I'm terrible pronunciation. But he's out there basically really fear-mongering about a Russia preemptive nuclear strike of some kind. Now, I don't know where this guy came from, but I I thought like Stephen Wertheim and Eli Clifton and some of these other people from Quincy Institute were fairly good on foreign policy. This guy seems like a whole different type of dude. So he, But he's going on them. Like, he, it's the only time I've seen the Quincy Institute getting like tons of media spots. So I don't know what's happening. 
Well, that seems a highly irresponsible talking point to put no, out. No, it there. is extremely like, fucking like irresponsible. Nothing. <laughs> like, what? That's why I was like upset. You know, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop at the Quincy Institute because everyone's like, it's funded by Soros and Coke, but it's supposed to be an anti war think tank. It obviously seems like that can't, that's too good to be true. Well, I guess this might be the other shoe dropping. <laughs> like, good Lord, dude. Some crazy Hudson Institute style guy who works for the Quincy Institute. I don't fucking know. Well, I mean, there's there's a couple other things before we get into RT. One of them is just this constant propaganda push for no-fly zone, similar to the Syria war, except now it just seems like um, more and more people support this without actually understanding what that means. What it would mean would be that NATO-affiliated countries are now shooting down Russian planes. That's what it means. And so it really would catapult us into a full-scale war between two nuclear powers. And I'm not sure if that's what people understand that they're advocating for, but you see this constantly promoted by like, there's just a lot of groups out there promoting this idea and a lot of the polls floating no around. Idea. A, a lot of polls floating around saying something like, you know, 72% of Americans support a no-fly zone. But then later on in the article, it's like it's unclear if they actually know the ramifications of what that would mean. It's like, well, isn't that your your um, purpose as a polling agency that when you're asking these people mm -hmm. if they agree with this, like you explain what that is? So it's super disturbing, very problematic. And, you know, I mean, considering the fact that literally like half of this country thinks that Russia is still communist, I think I'll take these people's opinions with a grain of salt because we're so grossly misinformed and propagandized in this country that like if you don't fucking understand that Russia is not the Soviet Union at this point, like your opinion is meaningless to me. I'm sorry. Yeah. Robert Kagan and Fred Kagan both commented on the invasion after it happened. They both seemed heartened or especially Robert Kagan said he was heartened by the fact that there's some Republicans uh, who are going more against Russia now. So he saw that as a positive sign, a sort of a, a hint of the bipartisan foreign policy that he was so excited about back in the day. But then he also said that he was dismayed by the fact, and Robert Kagan, or Fred Kagan also expressed this, the fact that Americans don't want to get directly involved. They seem to think that the polling reflects that Americans aren't willing to get directly involved in the traditional ways, ground troops, air power, <laughs> that kind of stuff. But I think what you're saying is really interesting because so many Americans right now are supporting something that they don't seem to understand, which is a no-fly zone, which has extreme ramifications. Is that sort of a weird way to get people to support this without them really knowing what they're supporting? I mean, is that the intention of that? Because it it's super obvious when you send in ground troops that that's a, that's a war. Once, right. you, once we're in there, we're sending American soldiers there. That's, it's on. But what's actually more dangerous, a no-fly zone at this point or sending in American troops? I mean, I, I think that they're both probably the same level of danger because both of them have such... The no-fly zone has more of a specific narrowing that could cause an escalation. Sending in ground troops sends a really crazy message. I mean, it would be something that the U.S. would be... You know, If the U.S. does that, that's like, then it's fucking on. Like there's no, there'd Both, be like nothing yeah. we'd hold back at that point. No, absolutely. I mean, I think a no-fly zone would be worse because then it's like you you have to shoot Russian planes out of the sky. Yeah. Whereas like troops on the ground, it's like, yeah, it'd be insane. But at the same time, it's like, I mean, 
what's the difference? We're already sending the same weapons that our troops have to neo-Nazis and our troops are going over there anyway in plain clothes. The difference would be... The difference would be that there has never been or there ha- wasn't, as far as I know, a moment during the Cold War where there was an on-the-ground battle mm-hmm. between Russian and American troops. Why would, did that not happen? I mean, I don't really know. Like, I don't know because did was there a calculus that that would have escalated things into a yeah. nuclear confrontation back then? I mean, it's... Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. It's It's using proxies to do exactly what that would be officially. There's a personalization of it that makes the patriotism and the war for mm-hmm. much more intense. It's like a Russian killed right. my baby boy. I want to kill Ru- like I mean as much as the ideation for the West exists in Russian society, there would still be a very dramatic shift if America sent soldiers. Oh and then my it's God. like, okay, like now we're fucking on, dude. Yeah, so I think that we'd see a shift in Russia and that and I think the US knows that too. I mean, Russian society seems like it's very mixed too. I was listening to Yasha Levine's podcast and he was like, look, it's like kind of like a lot of Russians really agree with what Putin's doing. They consider him to be like God. They think that the denazification thing, the demilitarization thing is good and worthy. And then you have, of course, millions who are not agreeing. They're in the streets protesting, hundreds of arrests. It's a mess. Um, but I think what we do know is that it's going to cause deep divisions in both Ukraine and Russia and that Putin and his advisors or whoever is surrounding him, like what their original intent was did not materialize as they had hoped. I'm imagining. I mean, God, I, I don't know if their goal was to just get mired down in like <laughs> in what could be a months long, um, you know, battle out there. But it does seem like he perhaps overshot uh, this whole policy. Um you know, it it's going to be a mess regardless because the people are just going to be fucking outraged. Like people are dying. I saw photos of like dead kids laying on the street. Like it's a fucking horse show over there. And then a lot of people are saying that those pictures are fake. And the, and then the shitty thing is oh there are God, some pictures that, that look like they've been used for propaganda purposes that are fake. So then like you get what? into this like whole, what? like there was something going around saying it was like, you know, a bunch of Ukrainians that had been killed or Russian soldiers had been killed or something. And like, like a, it was like some crisis actor thing where a guy is like alive under the body bag or something. Oh and it God, just like, dude. I don't even know where it's from. It's probably like a video that's from like three years ago from somewhere else, you know, but it's like, look at this. They're presenting this as, you know, saying that they killed all these Russian soldiers. Like, I don't even know where this is from. This I could know. be just... I, they do the same thing with Palestine too. It's like all these, all this Hasbro shipping. Like, oh, like these, this is all crisis actors. It's like, dude, people are dying. Like, can you shut the fuck up? You know, we don't. I mean, and plus, I saw these images from like Getty Images or something. It was a very horrifying image, and it is real. There's a false flag announcement made by the Russian Ministry <laughs> of Defense yesterday, saying that. That America, I don't know if they mentioned America specifically, but they said the Azov Battalion is planning to specifically blow up like a nuclear reactor and release like radiation and basically do like a dirty bomb, like like self-inflicted dirty bomb and make it look like Russia did it. And this is what they're saying is coming up. So they like officially announced this programming. Yeah, so they they officially announced this like on their official Twitter account, uh, this Russian um, government outlet and the same day abby they also announced that they claim they found documents and they didn't say how they got them saying that 
there was anthrax and plague being stored at one of these bio labs that's sponsored by the Pentagon in Ukraine. So the Russian government was actually trumpeting that yesterday as evidence that the U.S. government's making biological weapons in Ukraine. I don't know what these documents mean. I don't know if they're authentic or not, but here's another, I mean, here's a strange follow-up on this. Is a lot of people have been trying to debunk this talking point, saying it's total conspiracy theory garbage, it's Russian disinformation that any of those labs have biological weapons. But Victoria Newland just said basically that the U.S. is working with Ukraine to prevent these biological facilities from falling into the hands of Russia. So she's, this is the first actual admittance on the U.S. side of these labs being something that's like strategically important to us. So that's, I think, absolutely fascinating. Who the fuck knows what's actually there? That is super weird, though, that it's not just some nuclear, you know, we're not talking about nuclear power plants anymore. We're, we're also talking about potential biological weapons existing in Ukraine. Horrifying. It's a very crazy world we live in. Horrifying, uh, dude. Horrifying. Or how about this? How about the fact that, you know, after bemoaning fake news for the last seven years, the New York Times literally published an article about ding, 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 the Snake Island soldiers and this alleged ghost of Kiev, this this alleged Ukrainian pilot who was like single handedly shooting down all these Russian fighter jets. They basically published an article saying these stories are of questionable veracity, but they're part of Ukraine's war plan to keep morale high. Robbie. So the whole article is basically excusing literal fake news and justifying oh, yeah. the fact that these mainstream media outlets have just parroted this uncritically and basically being like, it's all part of the Ukrainian war effort, Robbie. They need these positive stories, just like the 9-11 Let's Roll story, to keep morale high. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, it makes sense. I mean, I would... Uh, so, I mean, at this point, it, it really does make you wonder if there is, you know, post-QAnon, post-Trump... It's like now they're excuse. So they basically told us for years that we need to purge fake news off the yeah. internet. It's too dangerous. Yep. And now they're like, actually, fake news is okay because it raises morale <laughs> for the Ukrainian soldiers. It's like, what in the fuck? We just got hit. We just got like punched uh, left and right by like UFOs are real. Microwave weapons are like killing or like hurting our diplomats. And then all this shit, it's just come on. Like how much more of this can we take? Yeah. And then meanwhile, Vice News trying to expose Redfish, which is another like, uh, you know, Russian funded media outlet run by amazing team of dedicated leftists based in Berlin. None of them are Russian. It's just people trying to do good work using, you know, any avenue that they can to put out really important stories and documentaries. And of course, they're now trying to be taken down. Vice News published this big expose being like, this is a Kremlin disinformation operation. Oh, did anyone see this meme that called out Russian airstrikes in Ukraine, but but at the same time was like, let's not forget about all the wars that are going on. Yemen, Somalia, da, da, da. And it was like, this is Kremlin misinformation. It's like, what the fuck are you guys talking about, dude? And, and in the article itself, it was like this, it was like millions of unsuspecting leftists, including members of Black Lives Matter, published this meme without knowing, dot, 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 it came from the Kremlin. It's like, actually, it didn't come from the Kremlin. My friend in Berlin made it, you fucking idiots. And also, Vice News is funded by fucking Saudi Arabia, dude. You guys get tens of millions of dollars from the Saudi regime to whitewash Saudi Arabia, you just went in 2020 after the Jamal Khashoggi thing, after there was actually an uproar in Vice's offices from its own workers saying, let's not work with Saudi Arabia anymore. After that, they did this giant government festival 
to try to whitewash the government. I mean, you cannot make this stuff up. Meanwhile, BBC journalists are literally posting diagrams of where to throw Molotov cocktails in a Russian tank to kill its soldiers. Beautiful. Sky News publishing live Molotov cocktail workshops. All of a sudden, it's in vogue to support the right of occupied people's right to resist. I mean, I, I didn't get the fucking memo because for the last 30 years, I've been told that Palestinians are terrorists for throwing rocks at tanks. And again, this is very artificially driven by the media because like the Ukraine's been in a, in a mired in this, you know, civil war, whatever you want to call it for a long time. A lot of their people have died. And I don't remember any of this amount of support happening. I mean, it's like, it, it is really fucking phony. I mean, there's just no other way to describe it. That's crazy, dude. I, I I feel like I'm just been catapulted in an alternate timeline. Like all of a sudden mm-hmm. I woke up in a world where everyone's anti-war and everyone's like, oh my fucking God, like let's help Ukraine kill Russians. And it's like, wait a minute, like where where did I just wake up to? Yeah. It's where amazing. am I? Where am I? It didn't all it also didn't help that we were watching like a a, a very interesting engrossing like sh- program that how to with John Wilson, I think. I don't even remember which episode we were watching, but as soon as we turned the fucking episode off, we we were met with footage from like the news live of like Ukraine, like parts of it like on fire. And we were like, "What is happening?" We were <laughs> we were horrified. Um, very jarring experience. And I think that was the last night I saw you. Even wasn't it? It was very Alice in Wonderlandy type yeah. experience, and very disturbing to think that instead of calling for de escalation and which is what every government should be doing, calling for negotiations and de-escalation. Instead, you see all of the Western governments just throwing hundreds of millions of lethal armaments to literal neo-Nazi groups on the ground. It is very scary what this can turn into. As Hillary Clinton so proudly gloated, they want this to be in Afghanistan, Robbie. The best thing they can do is use as many Ukrainian lives as cannon fodder just to keep this shit going. And that, to me, is the most cynical, disturbing part of all. Our government does not care about lives on the ground. I mean, the sad part is, like, I'm sure some of these Russian soldiers don't want to be there. They're probably very young and scared, especially after maybe seeing how poorly the initial stages of this went. And some of these, like, young Ukrainian soldiers, like, they don't know how to handle weapons. You know, a lot of people maybe have this false impression that they're all militarized over there. That's not the case. A lot of these people have like no weapons experience at all. And they're being given rocket propelled grenades. I have videos in a very heavy agenda of just Ukrainian soldiers, you know, using rocket propelled grenades in like in ways that have no clue what they're doing, you know, like accidentally almost like hurting like the cameraman behind them filming. It's very evident that they are very inexperienced. So I think what Fred Kagan says remains true is that the Russians will grind down the Ukrainians the way it's going now eventually unless the U.S. actually gets directly involved. To say, and that's a, such a, like a bizarre distinction to make because we're, we're already sending hundreds of millions of dollars of wep- dangerous, now lethal weapons. How is that not being directly involved? Well, di- like more directly involved, we'll be sending troops, Air Force, all that kinds of stuff. I mean, it is it is a good point that these people don't even know how to use this equipment. They're being sent like the most top tier equipment just rolled off the assembly line into the hands of like 17 year old 
Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's just like crazy, dude. Well, Zelensky like, was having the army like ordered, like they were giving out their own automatic rifles, you know, to to kids and stuff, like young, pretty young teens. They were just giving them out. But the U.S. government is now sending Ukraine javelin missiles, which are heat-seeking, armor-piercing, tank-destroying like missiles, shoulder-mounted missile launchers. That's fucking crazy. So. The next thing they're going to have is probably like Stinger. I mean, I don't even know. Maybe they already have them, which is like missiles that can shoot like down helicopters and planes that are heat seeking. I mean, so once they get those, man, that's a, that's a whole nother ball game. So is that still not us getting directly involved? I mean, you would think that at that point, you know, I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah. Let's move on to the fact that every single corporation in the world right now, every Western corporation seems to be doing the black square but basically like a black square against Russia, like unanimous corporate boycott. We support Ukraine, like McDonald's, instead of putting up the black square is like putting up the Ukrainian flag. And McDonald's says they're like closing every single location in Russia. Apple pulled out all their services or products in Russia. What do you think about this, Abby? I mean, it's, it's how stag- is this happening so fast? Staggering levels of hypocrisy. I mean, it shows you that the entire world can come together to force the hand of any government that it disagrees with. And the fact that it has let the U.S. empire commit so many barbaric crimes over the last 20 years, and but because it's against brown people that like, and these wars were okay. And I'm, I mean, it's just horrifying. Like the fact that all of these sports players, for example, have been calling on the world stage to try to help boycott Israel for its egregious consistent war crimes against Palestinians and they've been basically there's been action taken to try to prevent that from happening laws passed in the U.S. people have been ridiculed uh, banned for trying to display signs of solidarity and protest against Israel or solidarity with Palestinian sorry solidarity with Palestinian people or boycott against Israel and those people have been punished and instead now you see boycotting Russia is like compulsory uh, it's not even an option. It's like you have to boycott Russia if you're a corporation and you have to denounce Russia if you're a Russian. I just read a story about some famous Russian conductor in Italy. He's lived in Italy. He he just is Russian by nationality. And he was like told that you need to denounce Russia. Otherwise, we're going to fire you. And so he so he basically got fired from like this longstanding position of this famous orchestra because he wouldn't denounce Russia. Um, so you see stuff like that happening over and over again. Can you imagine if every single American citizen working abroad was forced to denounce U.S. imperialism before they had a job? Um, and every corporation collectively punishing Russia in its entirety. This isn't just about Russian oligarchs. This isn't about Russian banking officials or, or corporations. This is about Russian people. Antony Blinken had said himself, he was like, Russian people are going to suffer. You saw the line of thousands of Russians trying to get on the train and none of their Apple Play or Google Play like train metro cards worked. Um, This is what's happening. I saw Twitch streamers who were like, I am cut off from all of my income. Like this is affecting every single person. People are trying to flee Russia because they have no money. All of their shit's collapsing. Lines are on the block at ATMs, banks trying to get their money out because they don't know what's going to happen because of what sanctions have done this collective punishment with all the corporations and all the world's economy 
um, that the West basically are subservient to the West, just just follow its dictates. And they're just like, OK, we're going to cut off Russia, asphyxiate the economy. And it's going to all happen within the span of like 24 hours. And that should really terrify everyone because it's the exact same criminal actions that the U.S. and its junior collaborators take almost on a daily basis, bombing people, um, militarizing communities and invading countries and occupying them. So for the same criminal actions that the U.S. and its junior collaborators take on a regular basis, this is what the punishment is. And I don't jive with that, dude. I believe in international law that's applied to fucking every country, not just selectively the countries that we're told are our enemies from the same people that are committing these heinous acts every day in our names. I'm really surprised that they were able to, that this happened in seemingly such quick fashion and it seems coordinated. I just don't understand. Did, you know, how did that all happen so fast? I mean, the Black Lives Matter, you know, corporate virtue signaling thing, it took a little bit. This like is, was really quick. Um, even like GTA, Rockstar Games banned their servers in Russia. You can't play GTA. Like it just, all these different companies are getting involved in punishing Russia. And I just find it very fascinating. Who, who did, like, were they, did someone influence them to do that? Did they just all do that because this was the their moment? I don't, I don't get it. It seems, it seems sus to me. Well, but, it's almost like now you have to. Because if you don't, then why not? And now it's like, it's this virtue signaling now where it's like, you literally have to join in the chorus of like boycotting if you're a corporation, otherwise you're going to be like punished in the other. <laughs> it's like, like literally that's like the pressure campaign. It's really, really, really crazy. I see. I understand that once mm -hmm. it gets to a certain level, but how did it even get there? Right. And it's, why are they banning uh, disabled people from Russia from joining the Paralympics. Like there, there's some really, really sadistic targeting to like punish people. And it's like really oh, disabled yeah. people. Like that's where we're going to go with this, dude. I literally saw So like um, experimental music, electronic music has always been very Eurocentric in the way that it decides what politics and which wars it condemns. Of course, you see a lot of electronic musicians now, you know, and experimental musicians even changing their flag to be the Ukrainian flag. And I actually saw like a super obscure Eastern European record label that puts out some experimental music that I that I've liked here and there. They overtly say on their page, if you are a Russian customer, do not bother ordering. So it's like not even like saying we have solidarity with Ukrainians. It's like literally saying like fuck off Russians, fuck you. I mean, it's like it's straight up just a middle finger to any Russian person. You know, Why are they, they could have this? worded it more. Let's say if you wanted to take that stance, at least word it more gently. It was just straight up, just fuck you if you're Russian, you stupid bitch. You're not ordering from my website. Fuck you. Like it, it really came off like that. I'm just like, wow, really gross. The experimental um, scene is so white, Eurocentric, and just so selfish that this is, it, they really only seem to care when it's white people, frankly, getting bombed. I mean, I don't remember anything remotely like this for any other war that the U.S. was involved in. And I don't think it's whataboutism at all to say that. It's very noticeable how much they really only care about white Europeans. Well, um, and it's like, it would here. be, it's like, yeah, the whataboutism argument. It's like, okay, I get what you're saying. We can hold two separate thoughts at the same time. We can walk and chew gum. Like I can be, 
outraged and repelled by bombs dropping on Ukrainians, but that doesn't mean that I'm not outraged by the bombs dropping right now on Yemenis. This isn't some distant past thing that we're bringing up. This is happening right now. Palestinians mm-hmm. are getting executed right now. What is it? What is it about this conflict? And I don't want to actually even say like, oh, people who have a Ukrainian flag are like lemmings and like this mindless herd. It's like I stand in solidarity with people who are outraged. I, I feel sympathy for them. I understand where you're coming from. But the thing is, we cannot just be led by what the media tells us to be outraged at. It's like, I get it. And, and if you're mad, I fucking get it, dude. But the thing is, the only thing we can do, the only thing we can do as Westerners living in the West, we can't do anything about what Putin is doing right now. Of course, we can join in anti-war rallies. We can join in the course of condemnation, but that's not enough. That's easy. That's the easiest thing you can do. The hardest thing you can do is actually be introspective. How did we get here? How did the U.S. play a role? How can I pressure my government to stop escalating this already very tense situation, very dangerous situation? And that, I think, is not being discussed enough. And of, of course, because that's the hard thing to do, right? No. And it's it's so murky, Abby, that even when you go back and watch A Very Heavy Agenda Part 2, I try to do my best to show what I think happened, but like, I really couldn't in my best with a good conscience show specifically, like all the, the, exactly how the sausage is made, what the U S exactly did there. I don't know, but I, it's obvious that they did a lot of stuff. And that's part of the problem is to go back and actually try to unpack those specifics for people and really get it to be, you know, lay it all out. It's really hard to do. And I, and I, you know, I don't even think I really did a great job doing it and making it something to look back on and be like, here is what the U.S.'s role really was and here's exactly what they did. Um, I think it's more something that would resonate with people who already agree that U.S., you know, you, the U.S. empire is fucked up and we already are meddling all these places. But I don't know how to, I don't even know how you would historically put it in the right context at this point. It's, people are just too far gone, I think. Yeah, and they're just out for blood. I mean, that's the problem is there's just such a vindictive, aggressive nature of of the discussion now that it's like it's it is increasingly hard to have a conversation about setting the stage of how this all happened, because it's almost like it doesn't even matter at this point. So I guess which brings me to RT, because my position at RT, I, I when in 2014, when the Crimea incursion happened, like I felt a, a similar way to to what you're explaining right now is it's like I was very confused. I didn't actually know what the U.S. was doing, what was happening in terms of Russia. I was surrounded by the Western media saying one thing, and then I was working inside of a news station that was saying the complete opposite, as it does regularly. And I was very conflicted and torn, especially having been through the Iraq war propaganda drive where I saw very similar narratives being spun by Russia today. And I needed, I felt like it was imperative for me and consistent with my moral values to distinguish myself and say, I have a difference of opinion. Um, And and so it is just upsetting to just see, you know, people still criticize me today and be like, you fucked up or you helped the U.S. propaganda and you did this and that. It's like, you have no idea what was happening at the time. People could accuse me. Let's say 
this didn't happen, but people could make the same accusation about me uh, for doing the beheading video because for a little bit, it was like injected into a lot of people might not even know it was fake. It did make the media headlines around the world saying an American soldier was beheaded. That could have affected people's minds in a way to enrage them even more to be against, you know, or like pro US war. I think if people watched, if they just saw that statement, you interviewed a couple people, you know, you would talk about Ukraine. You didn't only talk about it, that one final, yeah. like leaving the show statement. You, you actually had a lot of guests on and tried to flesh out what they were saying and you rebutted them when it didn't make sense. I mean, the ethnic Russians argument um, that that was the only reason Putin was taking Crimea and all that stuff. I mean, that argument didn't hold up fully to you. And you made that clear when you were, when people were bringing that up, like you're some of your guests. Mm -hmm. So it did seem like RT was much more influential back then. So like, if you even went against the RT line, people would jump on you. So, right. Yeah, no, there was no winning. And, um, let's just go, let's just dive into it, Robbie. RT America, Russia today, America shuttered its doors, March 4th, 2022, baby, the end of an era. According to the streamable quote, it's been reported that RT America, the American arm of Russia's state-sponsored network RT, seized operations effective immediately. According to CNN, in a memo to its employees, Misha Solonotikov, the general manager of TNR Productions, the network's content supplier, said it was shutting down production of all its U.S. locations due to the network being dropped from practically all of its distribution platforms. The vast majority of the company's employees were let go on Thursday. Quote, unfortunately, we anticipate this layoff to be permanent, meaning this will result in the permanent separation from employment of most TNR employees at all locations, end quote, Solonathikov wrote in a memo according to CNN. So what happened? Well, I have many sources within RT International, um, RT Espanol. No one has a clear answer or insight other than guessing at this point to what actually happened. I mean, how did they not have enough money to continue at least for a couple months to wrap up operations, especially when, quote unquote, Russian propaganda is needed most to put forward their perspective of the war? Um, sanctions, I don't know if they would have an immediate effect you know, unless they were just anticipating the effect of sanctions and wanted to circumvent them any way that they could so they didn't actually go up against the wall where sanctions hit and it was too late to pay out severance. Um, it's surprising that they didn't even at least let this wrap up. To just let people make up their own mind and come to their own conclusions about why RT America eventually did shut down, I think is strange and kind of goes against with what I would expect from them. Um, but I mean, I have no choice but to just assume it was sanctions and maybe perhaps because of this huge collective action to shut down the Russian economy, the ruble crashing in a really dramatic way and the difficulty to pay out these outrageous salaries in U.S. dollars that management was doing to the likes of Dennis Miller. Um, but all we know is that this happened right on the heels of RT getting banned. All of Europe removed RT's YouTube channels from all of Europe. DirecTV and other cable services cut it off in the US. And this is already after they had to register as foreign agents under FARA after the Crimea stuff in 2014, which 
led to numerous restrictions tightening during the Russiagate affair and basically culminated into like removing it altogether from most major cable platforms, including Roku. It is really crazy that Russia Today even was on American cable at all. That will always surprise me um, that that was even that they didn't ban them back when Crimea was annexed. It's kind of remarkable, actually, that it lasted so long in retrospect. It is amazing that they were around, and it is incredible that RT America existed. It was a very interesting social experiment, and I'm actually really lucky to be part of this wild fucking ride that RT America was here in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it it was a wild ride even from being, you know, far far away um can i is it okay if i tell them that like we you originally wanted to have me on as producer yeah go for it i wasn't ready to to relocate at the time i i regret not doing it in certain ways because i think it would have been really awesome but i think you did a really awesome job without me obviously i mean my experience just going there the few times that i did go there where i helped you on you know we we collaborated on a few segments on your show and stuff when I when I came and visited um it was an amazing experience I mean it was super surreal to think that this little tv station was basically causing all this damage um to the U.S. image uh you know just a few like a seemingly a few blocks away from the White House it was it was a very bizarre experience and I will never forget it um and and you had to be there fucking every single day. I mean, not on the weekends, but like you were doing a live TV show every single weekday. And I remember just thinking, how did you have the ability to even do that? Did you know you were going to be able to do that before you got there? Because like live TV is seems really scary to me. <laughs> a live yeah. stream is like scary enough, but like live TV where you know that like, hundreds of that this is just automatically going to like hundreds of thousands of people that's a whole oh, millions yeah yeah how did you did you did you even have like did you have anxiety at first you had to get over or like what were you just already built for it like what the fuck how did you do I that? mean I think that I because I had kind of the proto RT show I felt like I had positioned myself to be that person where I was comfortable in front of the camera where I was comfortable writing these kind of monologues, doing, you know, with media roots, we were kind of self-taught. And so I, I already kind of was a one-woman show, and I was really comfortable relaying my thoughts in front of the camera. I think if it was a live TV audience, it would be a completely different story. But every single day I would go in there, you know, and I would just kind of mm -hmm. forget that I'm speaking to millions of people through this camera. And I, that was the only way I compartmentalized it honestly, on a day-to-day -day basis, because once I took a step back and actually wrapped my mind around what I was doing and the role of like RT America and all this shit, it, it was very overwhelming, especially when the Crimea stuff happened. But Robbie, what are your thoughts before we get more into breaking the set and stuff? Like, what were your thoughts when you heard that RT America got shut down, considering the fact that Sputnik is still open. Um, Sputnik, the sister organization that was created, I think, years after RT America, in fact, it may have been created after I left RT America, it still seems to be operating right now. Um, my initial thoughts were, I don't know if we're ever going to hear the real story from this because I know what it's like when people leave 
a situation like that diplomatically. The U.S., every single gun barrel is like facing down on them. So I was initially a little frustrated. I mean, obviously, very sad end of an era, you know, feelings. On the other hand, I was also kind of frustrated with the way that RT America as a network had operated and seemed to kind of defang itself during the Trump era to a certain extent. It didn't it didn't really push as hard, I thought, that it used to, which I thought was just really frustrating. Um, but on the other hand, there were still good people there like Lee. You know, even I still like Jesse Ventura. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm not a huge fan of uh, Chris Hedges, but like, you know, a lot of people seem to like his programming there. And that knowing that all those people were out of a gig like so suddenly was really heartbreaking. I when I, Especially when I was thinking of Lee, like, stand-up comedy is already like a grind it's like a hard thing to do so like the fact that you have such a great opportunity to do comedy writing every day of the week and have it broadcast on tv as your job like that's that's an amazing opportunity and to just have that rug pulled out from under you just fucking sucks it's like youtube i guess but it's like there was something special about lee's show that i don't think is going to be replicated just that the fact that that's not going to be on anymore sucks and you know i mean i thought like his show and your show it's probably the best shows there um hundreds of people just lost their jobs overnight there's huge production teams that went into these multi-million dollar state-of-the-art studios on several floors of this building the fact that RT America was um, running its programming just a couple blocks from the White House, very subversively, like in the middle of Washington, D.C., downtown, just a block away from K Street, where all the lobbyists hang out. It was a completely wild ride, but it's also totally tragic and heartbreaking that hundreds of people are just now without work, that it's going to be very hard for them to find work because they now are branded with the RT label. Yeah, and that already became a thing. I mean, Jamie Kerchick, as we know, tried to, he made that like his whole crusade, or he acted like it was his crusade. He was just some kind of tool of a larger agenda. But like, we, I think on some level, this this was al- always in the cards. And I guess I'm just amazed, again, that it took so long, like for for something to force it to close down makes me kind of wonder like who, how those deals even got started in the first place, like with direct TV and Xfinity and stuff. I mean, I have no idea like what, what kind of backroom deals were made to get those. Um, but on the other hand, like when RT started, it was much different. It was not, let's say anti-American. It was more of just like a, it almost kind of just seemed like, um, like a light news culture, you know, and they would have some like internet news, like uh, alt media people on. Like I remember seeing Michael Brooks on RT, like really, really early on, way before you got there. But it wasn't like super hard hitting, like coverage of stuff. But who were the like? I don't know. Take us back to like yeah. before you got to RT. Oh What yeah. do you remember about it? And like who? Take us back to like who was there? Yeah. So let me pa- let me paint a picture for everyone. So let's go back to 2010. This was during the Obama administration. This was right before Occupy Wall Street. It was kind of an interesting time in American politics because, I mean, think of the transition from Trump to Biden. It was like everyone took a sigh of relief, like, oh, the Bush administration's out of the White House. We were like on the precipice of like a very like revolutionary fervor where everyone was like really anxiety ridden. 
because of like how criminal the Bush administration was. We were enveloped in all of these wars. It was like a very extreme time. Obama gets in, kind of placates everyone, lulls everyone back to sleep. It was just like a very weird moment. RT America was created in that moment um, in 2010. So RT America was supposed to be the American version of RT. So RT, which was already broadcast on you know, worldwide, like any hotel you would go to in the world, it normally had RT, CNN, and like Al Jazeera or like something like that. Like it would be like just different perspectives from the big superpowers around the world that would broadcast their own version of the news. And it was like something really important. I felt, especially when I traveled and I would be like, this is really awesome that people can just see the perspectives of different countries instead of just the constant U.S.-centric corporate dominated media that we're just pumped into our brains on a daily basis all day long. So at the time, it was very unknown. No one knew anything about Russia today at all. But all I all I saw of it at the very beginning was like broadcasting about different activist movements. RT America was created here in the U.S. because it was filling a void cynically or not, right? And I would argue cynically, filling a void left by a lack of real reporting by our corporate media model. RT America- Combined be- with, can I just add one? Yeah, yeah, yeah Combined yeah. with the extreme blatant nature of the corruption and lying, the pathological lying that had happened throughout the Bush era and the Obama era, like prime the pump. For that sin, that void and that cynicism. Exactly. There was an extreme distrust in our institutions, especially the media institutions, coming on the heels of all of these media outlets lying in unison about the Iraq war, WMDs. So, so yeah, exactly. Set that stage. Like the propaganda was at such a fever pitch that then you have this Russian outlet coming in and immediately plucking up these activists who had never had platforms on any outlet. Like... <laughs> Like democracy now, let alone like CNN or like TV broadcasting. Mm-hmm. And so you all of a sudden had um, Russia Today popping up where it would be interviewing like people who were protesting fracking or just like anti-war activists and such. Like, for example, Mike Preisner, who was in the PSL, this was like in 2011 or something. He was running against uh, some congressional candidate in Florida and RT America went and interviewed him. Like... It's just like stuff like that, like covering a third party candidate who was running as a socialist against some crazy neocon in Florida. And like RT America went and interviewed Mike. It was like, where else would you see someone like Mike Preisner talking about how why is it okay for North Korea not to have a nuclear weapon when we do like that kind of shit? I was just like, what the fuck? It was like mind blowing kind of stuff at the beginning. Um it, you know who, who was there at the very beginning like okay who? so so yeah at the very beginning when i started watching it when it was managed by dennis um trunov who was a very savvy russian guy married to like a, a award-winning like american journalist they knew exactly what the fuck they were doing they wanted to mimic cnn they wanted the same sort of slick presentation but with subversive content. And they wanted to hire hot girls who were super intelligent to be the faces of RT. Dennis was a little bit of a misogynist himself, which I can get into, but that's, that's, it was a cast of like incredibly powerful women. 
Lucy Kavanaugh, who went on to actually cover foreign policy for CNN, oddly enough, she was one of the premier anchors, Alona, Alona on the Alona show. Um, she is an incredibly talented Russian-American woman. She was hosting the the primetime show that I ended up taking the slot for, Capital Account, with Lauren Lister and Dimitri, um, really doing awesome reporting about the economy, covering crypto stuff before I even heard anyone talk about it years later. There's a very limited parameter of acceptable debate across the mainstream media, and RT exploited this lack of real reporting by uplifting fringe voices across the political spectrum. And that's for better or worse. And I think that the reason it was so successful is because it was before the era of YouTube shows really took off. And it had this incredibly high production. It looked like mainstream media. I mean, it did emulate the Western media, uh, you know, in terms of like it looked like MSNBC. And that's, I guess, what breaking the set was. It was like, the proverbial set. It was like I was breaking that boxed in set of acceptable ideas and and just that idea that you get from watching mainstream media. And then I was just smashing it and being like, I can look the part, but I could also be like the complete opposite and, and talk about things that you'll never see on these networks. What were some of the content that you remember liking or watching or even not liking on RT before you got there? Because I mean, there's some there was some bad and good stuff even at the beginning politically, um, although I don't remember too much of that, yeah. that stuff, but I think you probably remember it better than me. Yeah. So right now, RT America's reputation, I think since the DNI report in 2017 especially, is that all Russia today did was exploit divisions and sow discord and discontent. And they were just trying to like hype up all these fringe opinions to just make America like fucked up or something or just like, you know like basically just create fissures in American society, even though mm -hmm. those fissures always existed. And But what I would argue is like the coverage of movement stuff, especially at the beginning, was just like watching Democracy Now. It was, it was just like raw coverage of like positively showing people who were doing important activism, letting those people just speak for themselves. It wasn't trying to dictate any sort certain editorial line. It was just like a very raw like kind of like democracy now. That's the best way I could describe it. It's like, that's not a bad thing. So when RT America was created, it was created in conjunction with the RT documentary channel, which was actually an incredibly well-produced and fascinating outlet that had excellent and obscure programming. I remember being totally in awe of the RT documentary channel that would, I, I would watch a lot of the documentaries on their very fascinating stuff. So those were launched at the same time. One of the Were they worst. both on cable? Yeah. Were they both on? Yeah. I don't remember yes. that. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And so one of the worst shows that was launched at the beginning as part of the social experiment was Adam Kokesh's Adam versus the Man. So it seemed like they were throwing a lot of shit at the wall and, and seeing what stuck at the beginning. Um, on one hand, you had all of those strong, really awesome women anchors and women leading these shows. And then you had Adam Kokesh thrown in the mix with Luke Radowski, which was basically just like a fucking carnival. I mean, it was it was such a bad show. I think it only lasted a month or two because Adam was actually charged with sexual harassment in the office, which must have been bad because at the time, no one gave a shit about that stuff. Oh, yeah, that's uh, I mean, RT there. The, the, 
it did seem like there was a more of a blase attitude towards sexual harassment in within RT than other workplaces from what I've heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to put so it the mildly. Fact that, so the fact that Adam Kokesh actually like the show got um, stopped because of his conduct in the office is like surprising. Kind of says honestly. a lot. Yeah. yeah, it says a lot. Um, so his show was one of the more cartoony ones that really displayed how much you could get away with, I think, because they just really did whatever the fuck they wanted with that show. And then it closed out. Tom Hartman is a staple in left progressive politics. So the fact that he went in from such an early stage in RT America and had his show broadcasting five days a week really says a lot, too. And like whenever people cartoonishly try to depict RT in one way or the other, Tom Hartman usually is never included because it just doesn't fit into the mold of what you try to describe RT as. Mm -hmm. He was always like a very responsible, you know, like guy i mean i i don't know how else to put it like really great guy and really good politics and he was at rt for pretty much the longest out of anyone i think so he was there um all of those other people were there and so fast forward to around 2011 occupy wall street pops off in 2011 um and let's talk about what we were doing at occupy robbie and what you thought about the fact that there was this russian network covering the protests fairly Almost no other media networks were, you know, covering it, not even local media networks, even though some of those Occupy, maybe like KTVU or something did, but I I don't really remember. But some of those Occupy events were very powerful, lots of solidarity, people of all ages. I mean, there was like families there. That's why it was so crazy and egregious when Oakland police started tear gassing when there was like families with strollers during one of the marches in Occupy Oakland. Um, we were there when, or you were there, actually. I don't think I was there that day when they shut down the port, which was quite a feat also. But we tabled, we set up a little table there uh, one of the days that Occupy was happening. And we basically just, we decided to just do like a Media Roots episode from Occupy and just like talk to people, you know, capture the sounds of Occupy that day, all that stuff. And well, I think it was maybe even that day that RT had a person there with a camera crew. It was just like, look like two people. And I remember thinking, well, that's really cool that they're actually even here at all. And I think we even understood that like, yeah, like it makes sense why they'd be covering this. Like they want to sort of tarnish the United States's image, but it didn't matter because it was like such a amazing opportunity to get any media interest. Um, and I think maybe... I remember you went up and like talked to her. I don't remember who it was. You probably remember. And I think it was like right there on the spot that there was like some, like you had, you felt like you had some kind of in, like it happened very quickly. I remember being like really excited for you thinking like, wait, you just talked to her and like there's some, you, you built some connection where you're going to like, like it's it, I don't remember. How did that happen? Like it seemed like uh, you got like instantly your foot in the door um, after just like meeting randomly one of their, their crew. Well, I think that what happened is that a couple of the videos that I filmed went viral and that they had from already, Occupy. Yeah. And I don't want to say that they already knew who I was. There was some sort of initiation and I forget if it was that moment. It just happened really quickly where after doing a couple live hits from my apartment, um, I, I got the invitation to come and meet with Dennis the prospect of moving to DC was a very unattractive one because I had just moved to San Francisco and I had just gotten out of like a long relationship. And I was like, fuck, I can't imagine a worse place to go. 
than to like well, the belly of us, the beast. Mm-hmm. How how did they put it to you? Was it sort of obvious that did you feel that they weren't going to go along with their pilot idea initially? Because that was like between that and you having to move there with the two. Like, yeah, so they seemed first, to offer you. Yeah, first they were like, what can you put together? Can you put together like a package? And anyone who knows anything about news packages, it's like usually like a two to three minute tightly edited thing that you can insert in a broadcast that's called a news package. And so I was asked to do that to show my competency so I could do that from location, from San Francisco, from the Bay Area, so I wouldn't have to move to D.C., and so you and I did a really incredible like 10 minute piece about the Lawrence Livermore lab and we produced it for Media Roots and Dennis watched it and he was like, this is way too long, but it has some good stuff in it. And so he was interested, but he was just like, you don't know how to do this, which was fair. Like I, I didn't know how to do a news package and I felt like I couldn't edit it down anymore. Um, and I really was never formally trained in any of that stuff. You know, we were all just self-taught. And so I just, I think I went and, and saw the studios and met with them and they just offered me, they're like, look, just come and be an anchor. And then soon you can maybe have your own show if it goes well. Um, and I was just like, well, I can't really say no to that. Like, what else am I doing? And what other opportunity is there ever going to be like this? But and, you did, still, it was a gamble though. Cause like you could have gotten there, done some like news spots and then they've been like, we don't like, we don't course. think you're. We don't like this. Mm-hmm. So you took a gamble. I mean, like hoping that there would be something bigger. Um, and I mean, it, it happened very quickly. Like I remember, I mean, it seemed like it did. It was like, like within a span of three months. Yeah, it was really yeah. quick right after Occupy. And then immediately I was already working at RT America. I had moved to D.C. And now I'm just this anchor, but I don't know how to be an impartial journalist. So I just kept editorializing everything. And like my producers would just be like, you don't say your opinions. And I was like, I can't not. I I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm not going to like pull back and like all of a sudden train myself on how to be like an independent, like uh, unbiased anchor. So after like a month or two of being there, like literally it was that soon, Alona announced that she was leaving. And so she was the flagship show. She was the six o'clock and they were just like, all right, are you ready? So yeah, Lona left and then within the next two weeks, I was just training how to do the steady cam, how to do it all. That's why the first couple episodes of Breaking the Set were so amateur hour and I was like learning how to walk and talk and just like deliver because I had never read the prompter before anything. It was all so new. And then when did you, how long into it did you feel like you started to actually enjoy it and get the hang of it and then also who was still there? Like, was Liz Wall there when mm-hmm. you started your show? Yeah, so Liz Wall worked there. She was an anchor, you know, very unopinionated, just just very standard, like, news anchor. I remember she worked in, like, Guam or something before that as a, as a news anchor, too. Um, I'm trying to think of who else was there. Manny Rapolo, my producer at the time. Um, very fascinating story about him, too. Um, but, yeah, he Sam was my Sachs main producer. There. Yep, Sam Sachs was there. Um, Christine Frazau was another anchor, but yeah, I mean, when I was hired, I joined RT the same reason Chris Hedges and Lee Camp and Jesse Ventura joined RT. Like we knew that we were radicals. We harshly criticized the U S government and we exposed its hypocrisies and we knew that we would never have a platform like it. And like, I, it's like, you don't have to be in denial about what 
you were doing there, but it doesn't discount the work that you were doing. And it doesn't discount the importance of having a platform like that and uplifting marginalized and completely censored voices. Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, one of the most interesting things that happened, I think that was the beginning of RT America really going to shit was that Dennis left like after me being there only a couple months. And it took me, I would say it took me about a couple months of doing the daily show that I really started to enjoy it and get the hang of it. And it really just felt like second nature. I loved my team. I got in the hang of it where just, I just write my monologues. I mean, this was not only a daily show, the rigorous nature of having a daily show, having everything written, ready to go. So you can get the graphics, the the quotes, all that shit ready to go by like 3 p.m. Holy shit. But it was also, you're doing like five segments. Like I could have easily just gone out there and just done like an hour long or a half hour long interview with someone every day. But I wanted to do as much as possible because I never knew, I was like, I never took it for granted. I wanted to pack as much as I possibly could in every single show. So I would do five segments, three monologues, two interviews, two interviews, three monologues every single fucking day, an intro, an outro. Like, that's a lot, dude. And it was like just relaying whatever the hell I wanted. There was no filters. I didn't have to run scripts by anyone. It was absurd. It was absurd. That's amazing. So you did 535 shows. 535 shows, man. 535 shows. I don't even understand. That's such a crazy amount of content. I mean, I look back on it just to prepare for this. And it was like really emotional actually to go through the archive. And I actually was really worried because I couldn't find the archive. Just putting in a little addition after we recorded because today, March 12th, uh, YouTube has now blocked RT America and all of its programming affiliated with RT in the United States. So this didn't just happen in Europe. This is now completely blocked from all audiences living within this country. And it probably will be most of the world soon. So I was not able to actually get the breaking the set archives in time. Um, I have gotten contacted by a couple of people who said that they have the archive and I found quite a bit of it on archive.org. So I'm going to work on putting up a mirror of breaking the set. But, you know, knowing that this was coming, knowing that this is the culmination of this year's long censorship campaign on behalf of big tech collaborating with the state still doesn't prepare you for the loss of all of your work, your blood, sweat, and tears for three years of your life just disappearing in the blink of an eye. This is part of the historical record. This was a time capsule. This was a community. Not just the comments, but all of the embeds, all of the articles that are now dead. So much work and time extinguished. It's erasing history. And we deserve to have access to this information. But our tech overlords want to infantilize us and treat us like children. And so we're not allowed to see the thousands of reports that I did. Critical reports, interviews about the police state, about Empire, about Guantanamo Bay, about Cuba, about police killings. I don't think there's really any way to describe how devastating that really is. And of course, this wasn't just my old show. This was countless shows, countless hours of programming. Lee Camp's entire history of Redacted Tonight, gone. Chris Hedges on Contact, gone. 
on your parental and in question gone. It's all gone. And this is going to keep happening. They're not going to stop until every forbidden viewpoint is purged. And I don't know where we go from here. You know, a lot of, we've already gone over a lot about like why you decided to speak out Mm -hmm. and give your take on the original Crimea situation in 2014. But like, I don't know how much we've actually talked about how it was obvious that even though they didn't let you go and they let you keep your job, mm-hmm. um, they they seemingly were punitive about it. Yeah. <laughs> to just to put it mildly. So I mean, I don't know how much you want to get into that, but I think that's, I don't know, it'd be interesting to hear you talk about some of that. Because I mean, it, I think it leaves me just being your brother, your sibling, like with mixed feelings about, you know, how they treated you. I mean, like, obviously. I'm not happy about it, you know, like the way that they treated you after that situation. It was the flagship show. I've had countless people tell me it was the best show that RT ever did. And they squandered it. The thing is, like, when RT America was shut down, I went out there and I was like, look, this is really devastating news. Because it really was an unmatched platform for anti-war voices like myself, like Chris Edges, like Lee Camp. And like... It was the one of the only alternatives to this U.S. centric corporate domination of our airwaves. And like if you really do want to compare open, quote unquote, Kremlin propaganda to U.S. propaganda, well, it gets much more insidious because you can point to really the corporate capture of the state and look at all of our corporate captured media and argue that's just essentially echoing what the state says. And then you look at actual state funded media like Voice of America and Radio Free Europe and it just it just is so cartoonish the way that these outlets are compared and it is so much more insidious to actually navigate US propaganda because it's so pervasive and so all encompassing what i went through overall i did prove a very interesting point that you can somehow carve out editorial freedom if you are willing to put your job on the line and you are and you do have actual morals that are consistent And I think that that is more than what you can say at several other news outlets that call themselves free and honest and open. And and that I feel like is the biggest lesson of all. Misha, the new boss after Dennis, did not understand what Dennis was doing at RT. He didn't give a fuck about the content of anything. All he cared about was aesthetics. And so it's just so funny to see these depictions of RT and being like, oh, it's like this Putin-controlled top-down propaganda network. It's like, no, dude, if you actually knew, you would be blown away. And so I mean, anyway- I'm blown away from what i yeah. seen, just seen it from the outside, that it's like, it was obvious how much heavy lifting you were doing. Um, yeah. It was, you know, some of the other shows, it would just like, you know, I don't know where they were getting their scripts from to read news stuff. I mean, who knows how much that was coming from the Kremlin. But like all the other shows, it was very obvious that, it was all coming from the staffers. Like there was mm-hmm. whatever those producer meetings or production meetings you guys would have every day. I, I was obvious even just from being there that they weren't about like seriously shaping the content of the show. Right. <laughs> it would be sometimes like they would even, I mean, you even got dumb fucking suggestions of what to put yeah. in shows sometimes like monument men. Like, I remember there was like just weird things you were getting frustrated about where it's like Misha's like obsessed with getting people for like the last few days to talk about Monument Men with George yep. Clooney. And I was like, what? Why? 
Yeah, no, he like, would. That get seems fixed. like a weird waste of energy yeah. for a Russian ch- channel that's supposed to be battling the United States in an information war. Yeah, no, he What's would. He would basically be fixated on just random culture issues or like movies or whatever. And all these meetings that we would have every morning, the producer meetings that we would go over the news of the day, it was like Misha just always had the most kind of off the wall suggestions that were just, or they were just super generic that you would just see on like CNN or whatever. It was always just us battling him like this doesn't make sense for American audiences. And also like this is not subversive or anything. It was just like constantly like Misha, we know best, like let us do our thing. And for the most part, he just like gave up. He was just like, okay, you guys do whatever you want. But yeah, even the generic anchors who were just reading scripts, I mean, their producers who would write them were just people who were earnestly had gone through J school and they just wanted a job in a news bureau. They weren't joining because they were trying to dissent against America or whatever. It was just like, above all, it was just a, a, a typical news organization that had a lot of earnest people wanting to just tell the news and, and you know. And that's one thing I think that's really important to take away from it is it's like, you almost have to give the people like you and these other people at the station most of the credit for that, for how powerful some of that content was. The Russian side of it, actually, in a way, it almost seems like they kind of did not put the pedal to the metal with the opportunity they had. And that's what's baffling to me. And I just wonder, especially the way that the U.S. media now characterizes Russian disinformation as this evil, insidious thing. I mean, hey, RT America really could have actually gone much harder on things if they wanted to. I mean, at times, I remember even you telling me that, like, uh, you had like Misha like didn't want you to do like certain things about 9-11 truth like there was like a resistance within the network at times like from coming coming from above exactly it, if anything it was them capping my insistency to cover America more critical and also I'll just tell this story because this is one of the most fascinating examples oh, that God. goes against the mainstream line which was my producer Manny Rapolo, who I just talked about he was right there from the beginning, but he was always friends with very shady characters that I just assumed, oh, this is just DC. Like people are just friends with people who know people in the CIA, right? Like I thought that was like normal. And there was these shady characters, this cast of characters who Manny would hang out with all the time and surround himself with. And then I was just like, this is just so weird that these people are like bragging about how they like hang out with John McCain and stuff. And like, Oddly enough, his best friend seems to go to Syria quite a lot for his job. And he like worked in some think tank. And I was just like, this is just like a really shady kind of weird uh, web. But then, but long story short, after the Liz Wall thing, which I want to talk about, I went to Japan. Manny was my main producer on the show. I went to Japan. The, the moment that I land in Tokyo, I realized that Manny had hijacked my show, taken it completely over with Syria war propaganda, unfurled those Caesar photos of like the imprisoned Syrians, basically a huge half hour long propaganda tirade against the Russian government for whatever they were doing in the Syria and then using my platform to do it. And so I had to put out all these statements while we were in Japan. I remember it ruined my trip for like several days. I remember I put out all these statements saying, I don't agree with what Manny did. It was like, it was a huge, like, like explosion went off. I was like, And so when I get back to D.C., instead of firing Manny or instead of like 
like reprimanding Manny for hijacking the show and pulling like a Liz Wall style, like subversive anti-RT shit, I got fucking in trouble and they they switched Manny over to another show and then like never replaced him. And he was like my main co-writer and producer of the show. And so Manny went to them and said like, Abby's like throwing me under the bus while she's on vacation. And they never even watched the show that Manny did. And he was just so they left you without a producer. Yes, they left you producerless, seemingly as a punishment for you trying to explain that this guy basically hijacked your show and ran this neocon propaganda Mm -hmm. while you're on vacation. Mm -hmm. They punished you for that. Yes, and and left you without a producer. So if people don't understand why you eventually left RT, I mean, I think this explains a lot of the reason why. It's like. They didn't have your back. Right. And not only that, they literally left you without a producer to do your show the way you were doing it before. How that they basically put you into a corner. Mm-hmm. I mean, what else were you supposed to do? I mean, am I, I wrong? Am I speaking no, too much? Like No, 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 no. I had two people left on staff. One of them is the line producer, which has to put the actual show together. The main asset was never replaced. I was doubling my efforts to try to just make the show happen. I was a nervous fucking wreck. I was I was really strung out. And I remember telling Misha over and over again, I was like, I, I have no choice but to leave. I think this was Misha punishing me because after the Liz Wall thing happened, Misha was the one in the hot seat because Misha was the one who was getting all the attacks from all of the Western media. And he was the one who had to like issue statements and basically deflect all the criticism. And mind you, Misha at the end of the day just really wanted to be like, another like famous you know like bureau chief in dc like he wanted to be accepted in that press club he was very upset and i think he just never forgave me for putting him in that position that i paved the way for all the liz wall iterations that came after me there were many more after liz wall of course liz wall was the most infamous because it was the most cartoonish but like when i made my statement I had no idea that anything would happen. Liz and all these other people did it because they saw the fame and press that came attached to that. And so I don't know. I'll never know what Misha told Moscow about me leaving, about my time there. Um, and, and it could be as simple as that. It could have just been my boss just hating me for what I did while maybe Moscow liked it. Yeah, I wonder how much of that was Misha just mm-hmm. fucking with you and because he was personally upset or, you know how much that was other people. I mean, Mar- wasn't it the actual Margarita, the head of the Russian media who like said you should go to Crimea like after the initial statement you made, which seemed almost kind of like a threat. People took it as a threat. Yeah, at the so time. if you've listened to this podcast before, I'm sure that you know that I made that statement about disagreeing with the network's coverage and also what Russia was doing. I wasn't trying to hijack air or throw my network under the bus. I talked to Misha that morning and I was like, I'm going to say this. <laughs> and he was like, okay. Like that's literally all that happened. And so I said what I did. And then of course it, I became this international anti-Russian hero overnight without media networks quite understanding who I was and what they were platforming until it was too late because I turned the narrative on its head and started to tell all the networks that would have me on that they were also participating in propaganda and warmongering, you know, outlets like NPR, I'd be like, who funds you? Like Chevron, (laughs) you know, like it was just like that kind of shit. And so quickly they had to throw me under the bus. 
The next day, Liz Wall comes out, resigns live on air. It turns out her entire resignation was stage managed by neocon uh, Iraq war architects like Bill Crystal and his henchmen, Jamie Kerchick. So the, this was all set up. It was used to delegitimize what I did and actually, to a certain extent, paint what I did as like a false flag to somehow give legitimacy to RT, to pretend like RT had inter- editorial freedom, when in fact, Liz was the real hero because she resigned and blah, blah, blah. You can see Liz in all these interviews literally reading notes that were given to her by Jamie Kerchick. It's very sad. She had a total fucking spiraling out of control after she didn't become famous because of this. The years following, several other RT journalists resigned, hoping to get similar kind of fame. But I think at that point, it was known that it was just mostly a publicity stunt to do this kind of stuff. So the next day, I come, I wake up, you know, all I'm all over these fucking headlines all over the world. And amazingly, Huffington Post also covered it where they said, Margarita or some, I, I don't know if it was Margarita, I'm assuming it is, the, the woman who runs all of RT, but it basically said Abby's getting shipped to Crimea. Abby Martin is getting shipped to Crimea. And so I walk into work and I was like, Misha, what is this? Like I, and Misha was like, it's great news. He's like, you're going to Crimea. <laughs> and so i was like look i was like the fact that you already like like put this out there that i'm going is why i'm not gonna go i was like i was never consulted i might have wanted to go it would have maybe been interesting but i was never asked i was told that this is happening and so of course i'm not gonna fucking go why would i a bunch of bullshit But so it's just so wild to actually look back on what I did, you know, going through these archives and seeing the incredible opportunities, going to Guantanamo Bay, having the Guantanamo Bay detainees tell me through their lawyers that they watched my show every day. You know, like, just like, that's so amazing that these Guantanamo Bay detainees who get, no one gives a shit about them and they're still sitting there languishing and they watched my show and they were telling me that they appreciated me, you know? It's just, like, stuff like that that makes me just really proud. Can I say that they they watched, also saw me playing on, on your show? <laughs> I was really proud of that. It was very heartening to hear that. I mean, I being able to perform that on any television station besides, like, a local public access TV <laughs> station was amazing i mean and i'm so thankful that you let me do that i mean like i remember even being worried a couple weeks before thinking like will this be too ridiculous if we just play a song where it's just this clip of obama saying we kill kids on the basketball court (laughs) i mean i know abby's show gets edgy but this just seems like really over the top and you were just like no this is great (laughs) like (laughs) and then like while i was there like they just let me sit in the editing booth and like edit because i played too long when they filmed it so i was like fuck what am i gonna do i can't just cut the song off so they literally let me use the rt editing booth and edit my own performance for like the whole rest of the day which i was really thankful for so i could get it like perfect looking for the exact like amount of time you know limit that it needed to be so that was that was amazing i mean there's like that performance was so ridiculous that buzzfeed that was actually the first time i saw buzzfeed <laughs> write about um rt was what it was, was it like the top, top 10 moments top 10 craziest moments rt uh <laughs> during the ukraine incursion 
And that was one of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wore a Freemason bomber jacket, like a blue and gold uh, bomber jacket on there. And I had some Freemasonic-themed EP that was coming out at the time. And some guy, actually, who runs a blog you may have heard of, if you're a listener, called Little Green Footballs, said that my opening, like, our little back and forth before I performed was code for us talking about how the Jews control the world. (laughs) And he was saying that because I said that the Freemasons used to be a mafia-like organization (laughs) and would have influence over the press in certain, like, parts of the United States. And he said that we were using code for Jews. That was, and he just like wrote an entire article about just me talking about Freemasons on your show. It's really surreal, actually. It is your your performance is actually one of my favorite segments on the show because nice. I had a segment called Breaking the Stage where I did highlight musicians, and mm-hmm. a lot of them were misses. But a lot of incredible musicians like the Narcissist, like my friend Soul, and of course, Fluorescent Gray, my brother Robbie. Uh, I really encourage everyone to check it out. It is it is one of those things that you'll just never see on TV ever again. Like it's unmatched and it's just bizarre, the surreal nature of, of your performance, the, the what the performance was, our interview. The whole thing is just <laughs> hilarious, dude. Yeah. I mean... I just wanted to briefly just say what what else I was able to cover and just how crazy it is to think that Misha just like let me do like I never asked anyone. I would just book these guests, do these interviews and like maybe one out of like 10 crazy guests that Misha would just be like, oh, like, did I see Amber Lyon taking mushrooms like on TV? (laughs) 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 Like like Amber Lyon when she switched over from like war reporting to just doing like psychedelic research. And she had all this footage that I just like fed to the to the editing bay without even anyone approving it or anything of of Amber just popping all of these psychedelic mushrooms on her journeys. And like the whole (laughs) interview, she was just B-roll. Of her, nice. like, tripping out in bed and, like, the Amazon and shit. And, like, all this is, like, very over the top. Like, her taking ayahuasca. That's amazing. Um, but, I mean, just the, the Guantanamo Bay thing, I think it means everything to me. You know, going to the West Bank and seeing Palestinians recognize me for my rants against Israeli war crimes in 2014. And they were like, you're the, you you are her. Like, you are that person who gave us a voice. And it's like... It's just incredible stuff to look back and take stock of what Breaking the Set did, you know, because it was like such a traumatizing, weird way to end and to walk away and like never look back. It wasn't even about the politics. It was just a very classic like boss employee relationship. I mean, of course, there's a lot of political context, but it and after the Crimea statement, as you mentioned, I covered Ukraine like for three months. It was like all I it was like every day we'd have another interview where we're doing either debates, hosting both sides. It was like I really wanted to dig in there and not just let it go and not just be that token statement to be like, OK, now I'm done. Like I made my statement and it proved this and now it's over. It's like, no, I kept pushing and I kept going looking at this list of like, you know, going to to cover the BP oil spill, going to hurricane, covering Hurricane Katrina after the fact, talking to like victims of Blackwater and people who are like, have cancer from the BP oil spill today, going to Cuba 
being able to wrap up breaking the set with these incredible episodes about Cuba, um, having Joe Rogan on to talk about DMT, like literally Joe Rogan on breaking the set talking oh, about DMT about and that. lucid dreaming. That's hilarious. That's amazing. I mean, having Bob Graham on talking to him about the 9-11 cover-up, Ed Asner telling me that the buildings were blown up, having a Nestle a, a, a Nestle uh, um, oh, woman who looked like a robot, like a um, Vanilla Sky. <laughs> it was the Vanilla Sky uh, demo video personified with a. Ne- that was the craziest. A shit. replicant. We just gotta clip that and put it on Twitter, dude. Like just yeah, you know what? Just that by I itself. should. I should. The replicant from Nestle. It's a, telling that was me. one of them. Definitely one of the. That's like top five moments of your show for sure. Absolutely that incredible. Was, I've never seen anything like that. What were they thinking <laughs> sending that response to you? Um, you know, being able to confront an Israeli Netanyahu spokesperson about Netanyahu's war crimes during the 2014 Gaza Oh my God, Gaza I forgot. War. Wasn't that more than once? Yes, and he said, come to Israel. Come to Israel. And I was like, okay, dude, I will. And I fucking did. Confronting Howard Dean about being funded by the MEK. I mean, confronting Larry King, too, because Larry King, absurdly, and this really shows you that Misha was so obsessed with aesthetics and he was also just really obsessed with being popular and he wanted to be a successful network. And that's why he hired all these famous people and had all these weird shows. That's why he hired William Shatner. That's why he hired Dennis Miller. That's why he hired Larry King. Larry King was like the most proud he's ever been because this mainstream person finally was adding legitimacy to RT America and finally putting it in the mainstream. And um, and that's really what this was, guys. That's why these famous people had these sh- weird shows there. It would make sense if you were like firing on all cylinders, swinging really hard at the US government, and then you wanted to also on top of that, add Larry King into the mix to just add legitimacy to the whole network even more. But that's not really what they did because by the time they had brought on Larry King, I feel like that's when the network sort of started to defang and get oddly less uh, critical of the U.S. government. And I never really understood fully why that is. Maybe I always thought maybe the Trump administration made some of that happen because Russia wanted to try to like make friends with the Trump administration. So maybe on some level that affected the way that RT's coverage was. But I mean, they made other weird decisions like non-celebrities, like hiring people like Steve Malsberg, who was just a straight up like Zionist neocon guy from Newsmax. And they gave him his own show or they hired Rick Sanchez from Fox News, who's just like a generic, like right wing Republican guy to have his own show. I mean, they started doing that kind of stuff. And then they would even... They must have been paying Lionel, you know, who was like a hardcore QAnoner at the time to do those daily updates on the Manila Chan hour or whatever. I mean, there was a lot of strange choices being made that didn't really seem to challenge the U.S. narrative too much. I mean, it just kind of played into the deep state versus Trump narrative for the most part on an editorial line. Meanwhile, people like Lee um, were still, you know, putting out good content and being equally critical of Trump and Democrats and things like that. But RT it's as a whole, it seemed to kind of just, it didn't seem to be there to really hit the United States that hard by the end of its lifespan too much. And I don't know. I feel like they kind of wasted an opportunity with that. 
spending so much money on Larry King's contract is one. All the other choices they made with all these other shows seemed really poor at times. And I just, I don't know if the management, if it was still Misha, was he still yeah. running the ship? Yep. So maybe that was it. Maybe maybe there were other people who were more had more influence before, and Misha just kept driving it deeper and deeper into the ground. <laughs> I don't know. But that's kind of my thought on it, sadly. And then they even hired people like Nico House now, apparently, who's just like a complete fraud. It just goes to show that maybe they just got lucky when they when you were working there and the type of people they hired. Maybe it was just sort of like, you know, a lot of these leftists and activist type people kind of fell into their lap in a way. I don't really know how much effort Russia Russia today is like recruiting really put in to get these people. So again, I, I it just seems like maybe it was just lightning in a bottle and the Russian government itself really didn't even like have a, a big strategy behind it. I mean, I don't really think they did with Russia Today America specifically. If they did, it was it's not as evident as all the other things you're saying about your show having editorial freedom, how most of these people just were doing all the heavy lifting because they barely, the management didn't even watch their show. They didn't even care mm-hmm. about the politics on them. So um I don't even know where I'm going with that. No, it's but. true. I mean, like being successful despite the complete and total like hands off attitude. It's absurd. Like the Manny situation, for example, or some or hiring this woman, Perry Ann Boring, who was literally just a straight up beauty queen who it was cartoonish the way that they just propped her up, tried to have her run an economic show. She knew jack shit about economics. And it was like, why are you forcing this so much? Like, why is it so important for you to have like this economic show? And and if it is, why don't you hire someone who understands economics or something? It was like very strange, like a lot of really strange decisions and squandering so many opportunities to go to the next level. And didn't they also seem to be trying to branch out to like just generic conservatives too around the same time as Perry Ann Boring? Because I remember her, I remember being in the office and her saying that she was like interviewing Mark Levin. Yeah. And then there was like a, maybe a month or two after that, you're like, yeah, they brought in Eric Prince like when nobody was here. Yeah. And like, I, I wish I could have asked them, that motherfucker a question. Like you were like mad that you didn't get to interview yeah, him. Yeah, because he was like um, there on the weekend. Or- yeah, like. And that's and it's sort of weird to go back and look at that because Eric Prince does fit into this weird realm now of like he pushes conspiracies. He seems like involved even in like QAnon now and like linked up with Alex Jones. It's very strange. So what was that? You know, how did any even things like how did Michael Flynn even get involved with that RT dinner with, with at the RT dinner? The whole that whole thing is weird. I don't understand all that shit and. I'm not, I, and ever since then, like, I'm not going to trust the Russian narrative on things at face value simply because they linked, like, they're sitting, like, seemingly budding up to Michael Flynn. Like, that's a peanut guy's co-writer. I don't know. I don't trust that shit. I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, so. that RT dinner was weird as fuck. I mean, the fact that they, um, like you talked about, I mean, they really kept on a lot of right-wing weirdos and essentially purged all the leftists. I didn't even watch RT America since I left for personal reasons, but I don't have to even watch it to know that the majority of the network was just trash, like based on who was working there. And so it just further consolidated like the right wing viewpoints, purged a lot of the left wing viewpoints. Of course, Lee was still there. Lee at that point could do whatever the fuck he wanted. He was so hands off that like he was like, I don't even see Misha for like weeks at a time. 
but yeah, I mean, it, 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 Ed Schultz joining on board also was very interesting because he was like a total mainstream lib and also like you see videos of him like shouting down Jeremy Scale on MSNBC being like, are you American? Like when Jeremy Scale was like dissenting against the Libya NATO bombing. Oh yeah, I forgot that they brought on Ed Schultz. What a weird choice. Yeah, and it was just like, that was weird too because it was just so like not subversive, you know? I mean, again, just to legitimize the network, but it was just strange because it just didn't work. It's like, it didn't matter who they brought on board. And that's what Misha kept failing to understand. It was like the formula that he was trying to achieve he was never going to be treated the same way that other media outlets were. And he just desperately wanted that. And it just he just never got that it didn't matter what he did, basically. So basically, he didn't even realize that he was like, I mean, in reality, I'm not saying that the Russian disinformation thing was nearly as big of a deal as the U.S. government made it out to be, but like, that Misha just, yeah, it seems very odd that they would choose a guy who's naive enough to, to not be fully cognizant of the fact that this is the time to like basically wage information war or to some extent, like have your heart in it. Like be, you got to be somewhat anti-American if you're going to really make use of this <laughs> channel. And it seems like he was just sort of just didn't really care. Right. Um, Which is, which is just kind of odd considering how much hype was given to this idea of like dangerous Russian disinformation. And I think um, it's because of that hype, Robbie, that actually made him act accordingly in the opposite direction. I really, truly believe that because we're talking about like oh, when Jesus, I left yeah. two years later is the DNI report coming out. And that's when you saw, you know, Trump got elected. Or, as you mentioned, well, the DNI report really quickly mm -hmm. make sure people who haven't heard that you're the, what that is and that, yeah, like why you got mentioned. In it. I mean, you, you tell people. Yeah. So in 2017, the director of national intelligence released a report. It was supposed to be the end all be all conclusive study on how Russian propaganda basically got us here, led to the, pave the way to Trump, help facilitate this unrest, you know, um, and, and the, the plan of the establishment, having Hillary Clinton anointed as our leader didn't go that way. And so they had to basically blame someone. And this was supposed to be like the ultimate, like, takedown. Like, here's how Russian propaganda did this. And what it was instead seemed like a cursory, like, like two hour long effort by some intern um, at the State Department just threw together a haphazard analysis of RT programming from years prior to the election. It included my show. It called out my show, Breaking the Set by Name. And it also included a show called Truth Seeker, that was only on air for a couple months that actually went way farther than I did. Their pilot episode was about 9-11 inside job. <laughs> um, but, but it mentioned how these two shows specifically fomented radical discontent, sowed discord within American society. How did it say that it did that? Not because we talked about Putin or propped up Putin or anything like that. It's because we covered, I covered specifically things like third party candidates, fracking, covered Occupy Wall Street fairly, covered police brutality, surveillance state stuff. It was really that kind of content that they claimed sowed discord, right? So real issues, basically highlighting and exposing very real issues, uplifting these issues, talking about these issues. That was the threat. That's what basically the DNI report was. 
basically... Did they conflate you with the truth seeker? Did they imply you were bringing up 9-11? No, they didn't even bring up, they didn't even bring up 9-11 truth. I don't think so. Actually, let me, um, I have it right here. Let me just open it up. I have it in the doc. But it's interesting that they would single you out and him out. That implies that there is sort of a reason behind that. Right, exactly. It's almost like it's what's, it's not spoken, but it kind of makes me wonder, reading between the lines there, it's like, why you two? Oh, wait, here, okay, this is actually amazing. So from the DNI report, it says in the run up to the 2012 presidential election in November, RT America intensified its usually critical coverage of the U.S. So this is basically saying my show, like introducing my show was like when things ramp the fuck up. Like it's pointing to my show is like this is when they really fucking dug in. (laughs) I love it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but they don't want to. But they also don't want to give you the accolades because otherwise they would say this show. Yeah. It's it's like they they want. So maybe this there's people who who already were up on the up and up who are reading this who like know already what show they're. Oh no! But then to, they but like, then they immediately the bullet point underneath is like my show. It says this introduction of breaking the set on fourth of September overwhelmingly focused on criticism of U.S. and Western governments as well as the promotion of radical discontent. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> to the, you're in an official government document. I mean, what better uh, like notability can you get than that, honestly? Yeah. And it says that my the host asserted that the U.S. two-party system does not represent the views of at least one-third of the population and is, quote, a sham. It's like, yeah, that, that's fucking true. Wow. Man. That is so funny. Wow. And but when does the truth seeker come up? The truth seeker, truth seeker was on RT International, right? Yeah, but they also—that's what's also weird. And the reason that I got confused about that before is because I think that it re-aired on RT America. Otherwise, why would they say that the truth seeker was part of this? Yeah, now that I'm thinking back on it, truth seeker wasn't displayed on RT America. It was just RT. Interesting. So it conflates our shows, but it is sort of. It is interesting that you that they do single out both of the shows that did have like probably the most notable 9/11 truth stuff on them. Very interesting, That's, huh? Yeah, very very interesting, I think. Now especially that we're in this zone where even Victoria Newland is now saying that you know Russia's going to do more false flags. Everyone's talking about false mm-hmm. flags. I mean, it's just it's in the vernacular governments are using it against each other now. It's absolutely fascinating. Trump just made a joke in fact uh, at some I don't know, some donor dinner, he's collecting donations or something, uh, saying that we should take some Su-22 fighter jets and paint them as Chinese oh, yeah. and bomb yeah, Russia. Yeah, great. Great idea, yeah. dude. Fighting the deep state by su- suggesting false flag attacks. <laughs> Absolutely unreal. You know, looking back on it, there's a lot of stuff that I'm embarrassed about, but it's all just part of it like i'm i'm proud Let of my out. overall body of work i mean of course i'm embarrassed about interviewing mark dice and alex jones and weave who i actually did not know was a nazi and a lot of these because i had such little staff and because i was just like going a million miles a minute and i had no one like vetting guests and stuff like i would in the morning meeting they'd just be like you know there's this guy who basically just got out of jail for violating the computer hacking and abuse act or whatever his name is weave and he's this notorious troll and i was just like okay great talk to him it was like that kind of shit it wasn't like they told me like here's this infamous neo-nazi weave who did this and that and i was like yeah i'm gonna fucking interview this guy i was like so such a rushed operation that it was 
basically happened like that. The Mark Dice thing was actually Misha asking me to do it. And I was like, sure, I'll interview Mark Dice. I guess I could have said no. I didn't actually know how fucking insane he was at the time. Um, Alex Jones was another funny interview too. But like, yeah, of course, looking back on it, it's fucking mortifying. You know, of course, I wish that I didn't promote these people. But at the- Did you have Paul Watson on? No, I never interviewed Paul Watson. Who else? I interviewed Stefan Molyneux about the Iraq war. Oh, you had on Roger Stone too before, yes. way before we like yeah, knew because, what he was about yep, and he was, yep. he came on for his JFK book, Yeah, right? that was a really wild one too. Yeah, Roger Stone, Stefan Molyneux, a lot of people who turn out to be f- totally openly fascist, fascist adjacent, or just completely batshit crazy, or in the likes of Roger Stone, someone much more interesting who ended up being like a Trump surrogate, yeah. like total... Yeah, I mean, it's really crazy looking back. You know, there's a lot of embarrassing moments, but it was all just part of the learning process and part of my evolution, my political evolution, and which made me who I am today. And you got to interview such amazing guests, too. Just like um, you had Ogre on from Skinny Puppy. I mean, you had Roseanne on, and she was, I think, I, she was saying some some pretty wild stuff even back then when you had her on. Um, you had, God, you had so many different, pretty high profile people and I'm, I'm forgetting. I mean, you had Cornel West on, um, the Larry King interview was hilarious and he did walk off that interview. He ripped his mic off. You were able to naturally, I think one of the things I was really impressed by, not just how much live TV you did, which is crazy, but how you were able to do these adversarial interviews so effectively. And I mean, like just that skill alone, like, I mean, I wish, I wish I could see you in that format again so at some point um, where you're like interviewing people like Larry King and just like making them look like s- extremely foolish. <laughs> <laughs> Your interview style was you were unabashedly aggressive too about you didn't you didn't try to like subversively get to the challenging questions. You just straight up would like yeah. challenge your guests. Right. And I that's what I loved about it. And I think you even said like Howard Dean even though he was really thrown off by that whole experience of being having to explain MEK and his association with it, he told you afterwards that you kept him on his toes or something. Yeah, he was like, I've never Didn't, been asked it, this before. Him? Yeah, I mean, it was it yeah. was many people just being like, wow, I didn't real, I didn't like expect this walking into this. Yeah, you didn't expect to be just be like, boom, <laughs> boom. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome to watch those moments. I mean, I remember being like, my heart like racing, like, you know, watching you be doing that to some of the guests. And I think you had, because some of them were, I don't think a lot of your interviews were actually live like that. So you would tell me, you would would tell me, dude, you got to watch Howard Dean interview today. Exactly. (laughs) And I'd be like, holy shit. (laughs) It it was, it's just like such a whirlwind looking back at this time and how surreal it was to just be living in DC and be this pariah, you know, like everywhere you went, it was like, you didn't know if anyone was a spy, a, a goon a shill. It was just like everyone there is working in the system and everyone there believes in their propaganda. And so it was just such a crazy fucking time to be living there and working at RT America and be doing this show. And the resources, like that that's what's so tragic about it is like, I'll never have that opportunity again. A daily show with unlimited resources that you can do investigations and deep dives and and travel around the world and highlight things that will never get airtime 
and they'll never get shown. And, um, and being able to do that live show, giving access to high profile people that will go on RT that you'll never be able to reach. And it was just an incredible, an incredible experience. And it's kind of a melancholy one looking back on it because it could have been something great. You know? Yeah. You feel like it's a, they wasted yeah. their opportunity. Yeah. Essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same. That's what's unfortunate about it is as much crazy hype. Again, I sound like a broken record that they got. I mean, people do not realize how much of a wasted opportunity the, the network's existence really was. Imagine having that many cable viewers. Yeah. Like being shying away from doing 9 11 truth stuff. Like they, they were hesitant about it like at in the management level even though it's like the stuff you would have ran would have been like totally legitimate and like pretty hard-hitting stuff like why what were they worried about with that like the lionel stuff later that came was like all q and on bullshit they let that stuff go on for years um and they didn't seem to care about that so i don't man it, it does make me mad too when i think about it yeah rt provided a wonderful opportunity i would never have been able to perform, I mean, a song like that ever. I can't imagine ever being able to perform a song like that on TV again for as long as I live. Like, that was like a once-in-a-lifetime mm -hmm. opportunity. And so was your show, pretty much. Like, what you were able to do. But at the same time, like, it does feel like overall, they really did blow it. And I don't know what went on behind the scenes that that created them sort of blowing it like this, but... It, it does feel like once you're hiring people like Dennis Miller and stuff, you've really lost the plot. It just doesn't make any sense. It is. You know, I don't even want to know how much he was being paid. I know. Probably over half a million. Uh, easily. I would imagine. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back on it, I'm, it, I have such mixed emotions and it's like looking at it just like in the net effect of the show and everything. And I feel like it had such a profound impact. And the fact that it was written up in the DNI report, it shows you that when breaking the set was on every day, it was impacting people and it was a thorn up the ass of the U S and if it wasn't, we never would have heard about it. And afterwards something happened where they ended up basically acquiescing wittingly or not to the demands of the U S government, which was, taming itself and neutering itself and basically all the sub the most subversive viewpoints were completely minimal and um i just look back at those days and just complete disbelief that i was able to do what i did on tv and i think that a lot of people have told me the same thing that they would just be flipping through the tv and they'd come across someone saying some crazy ass shit and they were like what the fuck is this like like i can't tell you how many people told me that they found out about breaking the set being like what the fuck it was like the howard beale network moment it was like you look the part you act the part but the shit that you're saying is like people couldn't believe it because it was just so out of the box of anything that they were used to and I, you know, I, I have endless gratitude for being given the platform and all of the resources that I was given to explore all the bizarre, obscure topics that I did, all the stuff that I was interested in, fascinated with, all the trips that I was able to go take, shed some light on some really crucial issues and, you know, pass the torch on to people like Anya and Lee. And like now, 
talking about it and people are like, oh, it was just utter trash for six years, so who cares? And it's like, but just living that and and knowing what it was is like so intense. It felt like, and almost, I mean, even just from my perspective, it almost felt like I was like periphery to some kind of like movie plot. I mean, <laughs> like at times, I mean, just the role that you played, it felt so important and it was it meant it meant a hell of a lot like i i remember i remember getting emotional like what just watching your show like just thinking about what what it meant to the to the whole makeup of like the world at that time i mean it was it was a really big deal there was even just a void of people even criticizing obama right and i remember like we were just amazed by that like that your show was coming from a left perspective criticizing obama and it was like that I think was probably like a splash of cold water for people too. I mean, it it just you didn't see that stuff at that time. People don't understand how much of this stuff was not anywhere. Yeah, like social media um, wasn't really a thing. YouTube wasn't really hot. It was like no one was criticizing Obama. I was the one who coined the term "drone king." <laughs> yeah, it's hot. To, that, it's uh, hot to criticize Biden now, but like imagine a time where that didn't exist. Yeah, it's crazy. What were you going to say about the Drone King thing? Oh, just I just remember the graphic because I used that clip <laughs> in, my, in a very heavy agenda of the graphic of Obama with the crown. You're like angrily pointing. You're like yelling <laughs> in the clip, but there's like no audio. <laughs> it's so good. Or being able to like just cry like when Michael Rupert killed himself. It was just like moments that are just... It was like the collective like oh my grief, God, yeah. like harnessing like all the energy that we were feeling and like using that platform to just be like, this is this is like our collective rage. Where did you ever get scared? Like, I mean, other than I'm sure you probably got a little bit scared during the Liz Wall thing, but like overall, were you like ever like thinking that you that like this did any thought occur to you that like you would be accused of being like a Russian spy or anything like that crazy, like that the climate would get bad enough or that someone would hurt you and then make it look like Russia did it. Did you ever have any paranoid thoughts like that? Because I, I don't even know if I could mentally handle being in your position just from that paranoia I would experience. I think I compartmentalized it and I was just trying to do the job. You know, I, I feel like yeah. if I sat back and actually really like went through even what had just happened, which was the fact that Manny turned out to be some asset oh yeah that liz was some asset it was like it's like it was hard to even wrap my mind around that let alone like what ne- what was going to happen next possibly so yeah i mean that i can't even imagine what that would be like yeah so you experience it on a personal level yeah just internally in your own like friend circles right these weird betrayals and people not being quite who they seem i mean that's that's actually i mean that i yeah I don't know how I would have dealt with that. Um, what a fucking weird time, man. It's so crazy. It is crazy to go back and remember all this stuff. I mean, I'm getting a little emotional just thinking about it. Like, I didn't, I just didn't, I, there's definitely parts I did not remember. Yeah. And how much they like affected things and just how much like they had an impact moving forward. I mean, that Manny thing, like, I, I now, like, it makes me realize, like, you can't, you can be too paranoid. I mean, definitely people are too paranoid out there. But if you live in D.C. and your intent is to, like, shield yourself away from, like, 
literal U.S. intelligence agents, like you can't, you really can't trust anybody. <laughs> like you can make friends with people and like, but I mean, like if they work in government or if they are no people who do, it's like you never really fucking know. You just don't. Um, and I think that it's, it's, D.C. is a crazy place just for that reason alone. So what a what a wild it was a wild what ride. a wild experience. Man, and what do how would you do you miss DC just as a hell no dude DC is one of the worst places I've ever been because it's so superficial feeling and because everyone is so untrustworthy. Like they say that mm-hmm. DC is Hollywood for ugly people, and it really is that because LA is very like obvious. It's like everyone's trying to fucking use each other. You know right from the get if someone's doing a bit or if they're trying to read you of how they can pursue their own shit, like how they could use you to advance themselves. DC, everyone's playing a game. Everyone's playing like the long con. It it was a very isolating existence. So that's it, Robbie. That's the, that's the real, real story right there. I don't think you're going to get a more authentic display of what RT America was really like and the good, the bad and the ugly baby. That's it right there. Yeah, and no, we also didn't even get a chance to talk about some of the wackier characters there, like Ben Swan or Sean Stone. It was very cathartic to go through all this because I really haven't, you know, and I purposefully like not looked at breaking the set stuff since I left. I Obviously, as you can tell, I haven't really processed it all, but it's so important to do this. Like once RT America shut down, I was just like, fuck like it's just so crazy because a part of me just thought it would keep going on and it was like never it would never stop and even though it manifested into something that I just didn't think was really great it was like still just the legacy was still there and it was continuing you know to persevere Mm -hmm. in the face of all of the threats and the government shutdowns and the FARA registration and all of that and of course I have many friends that still work there and so for all of this to happen right after Russia invades Ukraine and then to to know that this huge station that I was such a, a an instrumental part of is just gone and that breaking the set archives will soon disappear it was just it was just like a hard hit you know Yeah Well that was a very emotional ride through the the history the good the bad the ugly the the nostalgic about RT America and end of an era, RIP RT. And yeah, um, you could have been something, you could have been something beautiful <laughs> if you really appreciated what you had. I'm sure there are some people at RT who, who've always, after what you said about Crimea, they've maybe even seen you as some like entitled American brat mm-hmm. who didn't appreciate where you were given. But, you know, I, th- I really do think that they didn't, they did not see that opportunity has been something that would actually benefit them. What Jamie Kirchick was describing was like more clever than like anything they try to do about like, you know, a false flag that you're like speaking out <laughs> as like a fake thing to make it seem like they have, you know, that people there have editorial independence. Anyway, that was very convoluted, but, but yeah, I mean, shit's getting really crazy. It's so gross that you look at like RT America's wiki and it's just like half of it's just about what Jamie Kirchick has said about the network and like half of it's about oh Liz Wall. God. And it's just like, it's just such a grotesque oh. way to summarize what this project was. 
beyond grotesque it's just fictional i mean at least be truthful about it that's what we're trying to do that's why we're not glossing over everything you know i asked you specifically if you would be okay talking about like the negative things about it because i mean i don't think i just don't think very many people are going to tell that story so thank you for like being willing to do it and i don't think there's going to be anything else like it um is the thing so even though everybody acts like there's all these opportunities now on the internet with streaming and stuff, I, I don't think, I think it was, it's kind of the end of an era. I, I think the one of the key messages here is like carve out your own space and, and really build up and following on your own. Um, if you can, if you can put in the work, uh, cause that's always going to be what ultimately matters. Having breaking the set and it was like an amazing way to help build, build that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And our podcast, I'm sure we've gotten a lot of, of people just to our podcast from people who got introduced to your show. So I really value that. And Thank you, Robbie. It was really amazing to talk about all this and to really just digest what happened, what I was a part of, and look back on it with pride. Above all, I, I did my best. Changed my life forever, and I'm sure it changed a lot of people's opinions and minds. And the thing is, we'll never know what kind of influence it really had. That's a thing. It's like, yeah, it was broadcasting to all these people, but like we never really had numbers of like who was actually tuning in and all that. And so it's just kind of the the great unknown. But all we do know for sure is that it was used and greatly exaggerated by the U.S. government because they didn't want to account for their own political failures. So it's easy to blame this obscure Russian media network um and and just shut it down once and for all um we'll definitely put some fun clips in here that i that i can get ready to go just to bring us back to those days when things were much simpler robbie before we were on the precipice of an actual um you know world war so (laughs) it's like were they simpler or was it just more hidden (laughs) it's like i don't know i think probably more hidden maybe i don't know man Deep states really coming out and showing their faces. People are waking up. We could see them now. And be sure to stay tuned for more coverage about the Ukraine biological labs situation. That we have a lot of detail coming on a future episode. Thanks so much. Well, thank you everybody for listening. As always, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. For as little as $5 a month or per episode, you get access to a premium bonus episode per month. We have tons of content, something like over 75 hours of content of just our bonus episodes that's immediately available if you become a subscriber. You can do so at patreon.com slash Roots radio. Take care, everybody. <laughs>